I don't think I really have a controversial opinion, but I think one thing that makes most people surprised is when they ask me how much um, emergency cash I have, I usually tell them two years and they'll be shocked. Like, why, why do you keep two years? I thought the rule of thumb is six to 12 months. But, you know, I, I see value in that. In a sense, uh, you always have to find that number that is suitable for you um, in terms of, you know, like throughout crises, you're able to hold through. You have that holding power because in order to finish, we must first uh, be able to finish the race, right? And and same thing with compounding and growing uh, your wealth. I don't want to be in a situation whereby, you know, uh, maybe some of my family members, uh, you know, get into medical emergency, need cash or something. And then the market is doing very badly at the same time. I don't want to be put in a position whereby I liquidate at rock bottom prices, which is why mm. I, I, I hold quite a lot of uh, emergency fund. Um, in terms of investable cash, I'm usually fully invested, but the two years is strictly, no matter how bad the market fall, yeah. I, will, I will never invest that amount of money. And I will always make sure that my insurance, so on and so forth, is taken care of. It, it, it is always from um, protecting the downside point of view. You know, I, I really don't want to be put in a position whereby one day I need to touch my investment just because, you know, I never handle my personal finances correctly. Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six-Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www firl.co slash f-r-e-e or www.firl.co slash free hello 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 everyone welcome back to the firel podcast best place for long-term stock investors today's special guest is mr thomas chua he is uh, in my eyes at least huge on twitter one of the better writers out there and there are many good writers on twitter and he has a lot of wisdom to share to everybody uh, through his experience. Now, without me telling uh, you listeners uh, what he has done and what um, and how he came to be, um, I will let him tell his story. Uh, but before that, welcome to the podcast, Mr. Thomas. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I started investing about 14 years ago. Um, I think that was when I was around 17 or 18 um, right. What really got me started right, was when I read the book uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. So mm -hmm. that, that book gave me the first aha moment. right? It was a great why book, but not a great how book. Like It, mm. it gave me a very strong why as to like why I need to start um, accumulating income productive assets. You know Why there's this sense of urgency? Because ultimately, it introduced a very real concept, which is called the red race, right? And back then, yeah. I was already half working, half studying, you know, trying to pay bills and all that. So I, I could see very clearly like if I don't begin um, learning how to invest today, learning how so-called the rich dad do it, you know, then I'm just going to live my race, live my life, you know, um, chasing the, running the rat race. And, you know, it seems kind of like a, a pretty unfulfilling and very sad life if I just, you know, I leave just to pay bills. And since then, you know, I really started uh, trying to learn everything I can about investing Right. Uh, and, and it wasn't easy. Um, like back then, the materials online, all this, it wasn't that, that sufficient. So I spent most of my time in the library. I remember reading all, all investing books I could get my hands on. 
Yeah, so it's only after a few years, you know, I tried technical analysis, I tried, uh, you know, dividend, I tried deep value. Eventually, um, then I arrived at where I am today, whereby I mainly focus on companies, you know, that have a wide mode, still expanding the mode. Um, maybe we can touch on this later. Yeah. Like the trajectory of the mode is way more important than the size of the mode today. Um, and also company that's able to continue to grow, defend itself against other competitors, you know, able to grow into different verticals, you know, really right, to right. compound um, investors' wealth over the super long run. Yeah, so basically that's my story from last time until today, how my investing style gradually evolved. But be- yeah. before that, right, maybe as a, as a kid, right, um, what were some of the money beliefs you grew up in? Because uh, one thing I realized is that uh, you know, I thought everyone had the beliefs that I had, you know, important to save money, you know, important to, uh, you know, give back, things like that. Uh, but really, that's not necessarily the case for everybody. So I just want to get a sense, right, what, uh, how, how were you raised and what were the money beliefs before I reached that point that, I guess. Yeah, so that is a good question, right? Um, so basically for myself, I come from a household where both my parents did not work since I was a very young age. I mean, for several reasons, like... My mom has always been a housewife. My dad, you know, he's, uh, you know, he used to be addicted to gambling and alcohol and so on and so forth. Mm. So, which is why I had to start work very, very early. I see. Yeah. So, I mean, I when I when I look at my parents, right, one of them like to save a lot. The other, you know, don't have twenty dollars even if it's bank account um, at any one point in time. You know, and it was very clear to me that um, being, you know, saving money, uh, being thrifty is super important. But then again, when I look at my mom and when I look at my relatives, those people who are very thrifty, uh, but not high income earners or, you know, don't even have a job at all. um, There wasn't a clear path to wealth or freedom in that sense. And when I look at that, it wasn't really the kind of lifestyle I want to have. And there was only two ways uh, back back at that age whereby I see, um, you know, one could attain wealth. And then one is by starting a business. Or two is that you get a job and then you underspend your income and then continuously you invest that difference into the stock market or property or whatever you like. Um, but it just happens that, you know, I develop a very, very strong interest in the stock market. And I believe, at least in the Singapore context, that uh, not investing in Singapore stock market, of course, but yeah, yeah. investing in overseas equities, um, you are going to compound over your wealth at a much faster clip than if you were to invest in other forms of assets. Yeah, so um, long, long time ago, that was uh, typically my money mindset. Um, and, you know, I, I realized my parents, or my father at least, he had a mindset whereby um, he, he had a very different mindset from my mom in a sense whereby he don't believe in saving. We are all going to die one day. Why save? And rich people are usually snobbish, you know. Uh, they, they call it howling, right? Mm. I guess our, our listeners will, will get used to this. Thing. Yeah, they yeah. call it howling. Yes, yes. Most of them know, yeah, for sure. Exactly, right. So, so yeah, so um, I, I disagree very violently with those mindsets. Uh, and so when it comes to learning about money, it was really um, from reading books. Um, not, not really an adult to consult with, but I, I guess, you know, because uh, in Singapore, there's a lot of libraries around. So I, was, I managed to get my hands on a lot of helpful books, which, you know, helped lay the foundation for my thoughts about how I should think about money. So mm. as you uh, I, I, I ask then, John, you can uh, proceed uh, with yours later on. Um, I, I had to ask, right, because I know John tells me this as well uh, in terms of trying to change and trying to, some people call it dramatically break the generational curse, but 
um, when you start to like read books and when you start to change the mindset, when once you start to disagree violently as in your words, right? Uh, what was the reaction like from your family? Uh, I'm not sure if you have siblings or not, but just your family in general, and also maybe some of your friends, right? Uh, because I know for some people, uh, it's not an easy process to kind of take the other direction. Yeah, so um, very good point touch on there. So there, there's a saying, right? When you are trying to change or evolve, don't tell anyone. Just go and do it first. After when they see the results, um, then, then, you know, they, they will see the benefits of it. Um, because when you try to be different or when you are trying and when, or when you are taking actions that's slightly different from the herd, usually people will want you to, you know, pull you back to, you know, where you were in the past. So, um, I mean, generally when I first started investing, the standard advice was that it is gambling, um, you know, speculation is very risky. But the other thing when I was transforming myself, um, apart from starting to invest, um, save and invest was, when I got scholarship to study in universities, you know, pay for my education and all that. There was one thing that, uh, you know, my dad said to me that I will never forget. He tell me like, why you even bother studying? Just go out and get a job. Studying is a waste of time, so on and so forth, you know. Um, wow. And this was when I got offers from NUS, NTU, SMU, and I got scholarships. Oh, all three. From oh, all three. Okay. And then I got scholarships lined up. You, I don't have to pay a single cent and they'll pay me just to study, so on and so forth. Um, but you know, that was the advice, right? Because I, I guess it was really doing something very different from what he was doing or what, uh, you know, the people around him was doing. So, I mean, even until today, whatever I'm doing, uh, you know, he will still disagree violently with what I'm trying to do. Um, I mean, simply because it is different, right? And I don't know, it, it might be just because, you know, he's uncomfortable with different or stuff like that. Yeah, but but I guess it is what it is. If you really want to change your life or like what you said, break the generational curse. Um, sometimes, you know, even your relatives or parents, you know, might not be the best person to do it. Um, you want to surround yourself with um, people who you are trying to be like, you know, when you're, when you're with a group of like-minded people, I guess that is where, you know, it really reduces the friction and they will introduce you to opportunities resources, you know, the knowledge, the know-how, so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was uh, actually <clears throat> leading a good lead up to my question because mm. I'm pretty sure most people find comfort in trying to anchor around advice or opinions from their family members. And obviously in your case, it wasn't the case. Did you actually had to migrate your friends? And I, I, I think you get, you get what, what I mean, right? I mean, like, uh, I, I tell MJ this every time I go back to a, a, a class reunion, we, we talk about the, the, the little stuff. Lah. But obviously, your, your, once your horizon has changed and your paradigm has changed in your case, did you actually notice a change in the friends and the circle of people around you? And how do you connect with them actually? Yeah, so this is going to make me sound like an asshole, right? Okay, so when I was in... <laughs> When I, when I was in secondary school, I basically come from the last class of my secondary school. So, um, I mean, in Singapore, um, right. So, so basically, most of my classmates don't really have the mindset of wanting to change their life for the better. And, and it is not their fault, right? Because mm. most of us in the neighborhood, um, not saying that we have dangerous neighborhood, but basically, when it comes to learning, right, most of us learn from our parents. And yeah. when we don't have that social capital, um, people will teach us 
how to act in social situations or you know what kind of aspirations should you have in life and mm. you know the first layer is always you learn from people who are closest to you and and so most of my classmates are like me mm. um the the problem is most did not have the um the hunger to try and or even you know dare to try and think out of out of that situation mm. i think out of my whole class i probably myself or maybe just one more person made it to university in singapore not mm. saying that you know it is a must to make it to university in singapore but um it it, it is um the kind of priorities we have at that age mm, so mm. um i'm i'm a very firm believer of surrounding yourself with the five best people you are trying to achieve and so um i filter aggressively mm. um when I look at people who go to, you know, class re- reunions, I'm actually quite jealous, right? Um, <laughs> right? Because um, I, I, I basically just cut off all of that relationship early on. And I mm. really try to reach out to, you know, people who had uh, a strong drive in life early on. Not, not that I wanted to be an asshole, but, uh, you know, I, I think the probability of you being able to succeed when you come from, um, a shittier family, right? Is that mm. you have to be very, um, you have to be very conscious and aware with, you know, who you are trying to surround yourself with. Not, not just because, you know, they may bring you more opportunities, but also I think the mindset is going to be very, very, very different. Yes. Yes. So, so true. And I think looking back at all this, right? Um, do you find friends or even family members that wanted to grow but were actually stopped because of the obstacles similar to you in a sense that, you know, like I, I'm pretty sure your dad will say something like, si gina tami che, you know, like I think, right? Hokkien, Hokkien will, will, normal Hokkien will, Teochew will say that, right? But have you seen people in the same light as you and then they couldn't break through that struggle and what would your advice be for them? Because I'm very sure many people are in the same path as you and what kept you going? What was your anchor in a way? I, I, I think there's definitely other people who are trying to break out of that cycle as well. I definitely have a few friends in my class back then. But I, I would think um, I was lucky in a, in a sense whereby I, I read a book. I can't remember what the name is. Is that it is not just enough to always, you know, um, try new things, have greed, you know, continue. But you also must know when to pivot, right? Mm. But I think for a lot of people... Um, when they set their eyes maybe on, you know, wanting to go to uh, junior college or they want to go to a certain polytechnic, so on and so forth. And that is just when their goal ends. But, you mm. know, I, I think in life, there's a lot of times whereby, you know, once you reach that, then maybe that, that goal is not the best for you, mm. right? Um, then you, that's where you have to make your pivot. Um, I think especially the, the strategy I used when I was younger, getting scholarships, so on and so forth, I think would be very different from what young people today could do because um, today the internet is much more established. If there's one advice I would give young people who's trying to maybe you know break the generational cycle is um, not, not just to start investing, not just to start saving, but also to start creating content online. Mm. Um, simply because like when you are creating content online, you are going to draw... Um, towards you a circle of people um, who you probably will never have the chance of meeting if you just stay within your you know your circle based on you know proximity Mm. draw towards you a very high caliber group of you know i mean if you're interested in investing the investors will find you ideas flow will come and then with the traffic uh, which i'm sure you guys understand also with traffic 
um, there's a lot of bargaining power, a lot of other opportunities, a lot of yeah. op- optionalities that will come up in life. Yeah, so so true. Yeah, yeah. great great insight. MJ, back to you. Yes, actually, we'll get into a bit of your uh, story when it comes to Twitter, but I'll leave that to the end. And I want to go a little bit into your, your uni days because uh, I did come across an article that you wrote, which was, uh, was business school worth it? So I deliberately not read it. So that I can hear from you. <laughs> yes. uh, I thought that was I thought that was a very very interesting question for me to ask because there's a conception, right, that you misconception that people have where you work with what you study and what you study will, will help you in, in work. And so I want to get your 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 thoughts on was business school worth it essentially because uh, I assume you went through business school and of course you're a high achiever. And uh, yeah, maybe maybe you can just let us know. Yeah, so I mean, um, I when I wanted to learn investing, right, the first thought that came into my mind was that I need to major in finance, you know. Mm. Uh, but the <laughs> truth is, uh, okay, so there are professions whereby uh, getting the specific degree is going to be very important, like doctors, oh, yeah. engineers, so on and so forth. But I think to learn investing, um, or in my case, you know, I really wanted to become a great investor. Is um, you, I, I believe you don't have to go to a business school just to do that because mainly they're just going to teach you a bunch of theories, uh, which is nice to know. Um, but you know, it, it it is totally not important for you to know in order to learn how to invest. Um, I mean, if I were to be able to structure a university program just for finance or investing, I would. I will fill it up with examples, case studies, you know, why this yeah. company, um, you know, why it shows operating leverage, why it became a multi-bagger. Hmm. But the truth is, I think other than maybe a handful of schools in America or maybe India, you know, those really led by um, value investors community, you know, those very, very renowned professors, most of them will not be able to give you the kind of education you are looking for. So, I mean... When it comes to investing, um, I find reading books or even attending courses out there a bit more helpful um, mm. than attending business school. Um, business school, I, I guess it, it's not without merit. Um, it helps you and establish a network, I guess. Um, yeah. like your friends will go on to, you know, working in some remarkable companies, you know, and then you will maintain that network. Um, but beyond that, in terms of the technical topics that we study, I don't find it to be particularly helpful. So, um, in that article, um, if I could redo it again, I would probably still do business school because I have no idea what else I can do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but I would pay a lot less attention to, you know, getting the best grades, but I would pay more attention to creating content online because, um, mm. I think in the internet is really the ultimate leverage. And, you know, not, not in just in this day and age. If I had a vision, I probably would have started 10 years back because in 10 years back, the internet was already a huge thing. And, you know, really anyone can start creating content just because of how low cost it is. It's just a matter of whether you're able to overcome that uh, friction uh, in terms of, you know, putting yourself out there, putting your ideas out there and getting judged by other people. Yeah. So what were the, I guess now my question would be, what were the books that you read that, up to this day is very relevant and it has shaped your investment style? Um, shaped my investment style? There's a few, I guess. Um, I think the 100 beggars is a good one. It helps you learn how to identify companies that are able to keep reinvesting at very high clip. Um, uh, this is by Chris Meyer, right? This is the book by Chris Meyer. Is that right? 
Chris? Yes, that is, okay. that is right. That's okay. the alternative. Then All there's right. another one called the Outsiders, which mm. helps you identify, learn about management who's able to deliver that outstanding returns for you. Um, then there's also Capital Cycle, which is basically a, a accumulation of marathon asset management um, letters from 2002 to 2015. So that is a very good book um, to learn about market cycles. And you know, the author was very, very um, amazing at sharing how he transitioned, you know, from a cyclical investor to eventually he just want to hold quality over mm. time. Mm. Um, Warren Buffett letters are must read. Um, then there's also Nick Sleep from Nomad Capital. His letters yep. are also a must read. Really, really yeah. very good letters. Then yeah. maybe one last one is um, Howard Marks. Really yeah. just to understand market psychology, right? Um, how the pendulum swing from extreme pessimism to extreme optimism. So how, how about that book on marathon asset? Because I think of all the books you mentioned, that's probably the one where I've not read. Um, yeah, maybe maybe if you can just uh, share with us a little bit deeper of some of your big takes, takeaways from that book. Right. So um, their investing style is... Um, if I have to put it across in a very simple, uh, a very summarized way, is uh, 50% invest in cyclical companies, another 50% invest in the quality compounders, which is basically how Nick Sleep does it. Um, fun yeah. fact, Nick Sleep is actually a student of Marathon Asset Management before he started right. Nomad. Yeah. Yes. And then the, when it comes to the cyclical investing, um, there's a lot of hints of um, how Howard Marks do it. You know, the extreme pessimism and extreme optimism. And there was one very helpful tip um, given by that book when it comes to investing in cyclical companies. Um, basically, it's a lot of people will try and forecast demand. But mm. demand is very, very difficult to forecast. What you should focus on actually is you should focus on the supply forecast because supply don't change um, so much from year to year. So when it comes to investing in cyclical stocks, you really want to keep an eye uh, on the supply that's coming out. So like maybe for example, like um, investing in Singapore, maybe property counters, right? It's actually um, relative easy to know what the supply is coming out because the government is always publishing over the next few years, how much land they're releasing, the HDB will be publishing, how, much, how many units are coming out. Yeah. So you actually have a rough idea of, you know, what the supply is coming on when it comes to investing in, in property here in Singapore. I'm not sure in Malaysia whether they have that, but they probably do publish like a roadmap, like the next few years, how much land bank is coming out, you know. So if you are investing in, you know, cyclical industries like this, then you really want to focus on areas, uh, the supply uh, aspect of the analysis. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. And probably I want to peel a little bit deeper and applying it towards different industries that exist today. What about, do you think that concept or theory is applicable to disruptors in a cyclical industry? For example, if we look at uh, the shell oil revolution that actually uh, uh, um, capitalized a lot of uh, what I would call trap assets or un uh, undervalued assets of oil in the US, right? I don't think anyone within the oil industry foresaw that uh, shell oil revolution or that boom. And that was actually a, an excess of supply that made America to be the number one exporter today as it is today. So how do you think that applies? Uh, and, and will we be able to spot some kind of a disruption to cyclical industries, you know, in, in a way? So one area the book touched on, um, but I must first clarify that um, I, I generally don't invest in cyclical stocks. Um, but mm -hmm. one, one tip the book actually gave is that you want to monitor 
how much investments is going into the industry because there was a very interesting study done by the author. Um, the returns of you know investment is actually negatively correlated with how much investments is actually going into that uh, industry. Mm. So when there's a lot of money chasing after um, oil in US, you can actually expect returns to start declining over time. And, and that, mm. is, that is just how the cycle works, right? You know, whenever mm. there's a new thing coming up, money will all chase after that. And, you know, returns will start going down until, um, you know, people are afraid, people are worried. People start pulling their money out. That's, that's where um, alpha could be generated after. Mm. So mm. Um, I guess like if you want to forecast, the leading indicator is how much uh, money is really going into that specific industry that year. If it's a huge jump from previous year, it's going to be quite an accurate leading indicator that you know returns for that specific industry is going to start declining over the next few years. And that all ties into the supply analysis, right? That you're talking about. Exactly. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's good because we've already seen it, uh, especially for renewable energy. Uh, I mean, we talk to a lot of companies in the space and the IRR returns for most of these businesses are abysmal. Uh. Right. And, and, and here, here I want to uh, add in uh, maybe a cheeky question. Uh. ESG. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you know where I'm heading with this because a lot of money is being poured into ESG and yet the rules of, uh, the rules of uh, engagement for ESG is very much, uh, you know, I don't know whether you agree with me, uh, very much vague. What is ESG? Because... Uh, today there is no uh, metrics or like an index, you know, like the S&P 500, there, there's an index, there's a very clear rules of engagement, whereas ESG is like, yeah, we haven't even got the carbon credit scoring proper, we haven't even got the social governance proper, so how, I, I, I don't know whether you can measure diminishing returns for ESG because it's so broad based, but what are your thoughts about it? Because I mean, did they have returns about- in the first place, right, John? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay, yeah, Thomas. So, I mean, the good thing is uh, I don't have an employer, right? I can say anything I want. Uh, <laughs> and, and, I, and I echo what uh, Warren Buffett and Terry Smith, they always say about ESG. It is just a gigantic marketing tool. Um, and, you know, there, there will always um, be capital that will only want to invest in ESG, which is why they're using it as a branding to attract capital. But um, like what Terry Smith said in his latest annual shareholder um, gathering, right? And uh, the truth is a lot of these companies are not going to bring uh, a lot of returns for shareholders. Ultimately, when it comes to investing, right? It is, it is still whether that company has a competitive advantage, whether they are able to grow their business. Um, just being, I mean, being environmentally friendly, so on and so forth is very important. Being socially responsible is important um, in the long run. But you, we, we cannot base our analysis just based on ESG alone. Um, mm-hmm. The number one, number two filter, ESG is probably like maybe like several layers down the filter. We, <laughs> we always have to look at the competitiveness of that company first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, no, I, lo- I love those insights. Huh? <laughs> I think you were very kind to say that uh, it's lower down. Huh? I think that's, <laughs> that's the kind version. Huh? <laughs> Just surprised it got onto your list or so. Sorry to interrupt this podcast. I know it's a little bit annoying, but I want to tell you something that I think can be really helpful to you. I can tell you're really interested in the stock market and want to learn more about it so that you actually know what you're doing especially when today things are getting more complex and complicated. That's why we came up with the Stock Investing Blueprint or SIB. It's our signature e-learning program that teaches you how to pick the right stocks most of the time, buy and sell it at the best possible time and manage your stock portfolio systematically. 
It currently has more than 10 hours of content and it's growing. You'll also be part of a group of like-minded investors that can help speed up your learning process. To hop on the program, click on the link in the description or go to learn.firal.co slash courses slash SIB. Anyway, yeah. Took um, yeah, so you mentioned that there's this split for marathon of half-half, right? And you said that you don't really touch cyclicals and you're more of a long-term compounder kind of guy. Yeah. Um, maybe you can share with us why that's the case. One, two, what is your idea of a long-term compound? What are the characteristics? Um, I, I think number one is because, um, you know, there, there is so many companies out there to focus on. And if I, if I really want to, you know, compound my knowledge in that specific industry, so on and so forth, you know, it is not a, an industry or company I want to, you know, jump in and out of. I want to really know that company. Um, I want to grow that knowledge with the company because knowledge compounds as well. And um, jumping in and out of, uh, you, you know, a company is probably not my game. You know, it, it might be the right thing to do for some people. They, are, they may be just remarkable at, um, you know, investing in cyclical industry. But I recognize that that is probably not where my circle of competence is. Um, but what I like to do is I like to, you know, um, a typical compounder, their traits is, uh, number one, um, they, are, they have a very strong competitive advantage, which is still growing. Um, still growing is very important because uh, the trajectory of their competitiveness is very important. Or other words, in their modes, right? Um, their defensive mode is very important because otherwise, um, at one point in time, we would have chosen um, Nokia over Apple or, you know, uh, Blockbuster over Netflix um, or even, you know, um, some other company over Facebook, right? Because at one point in time, those are the younger companies, their mode is smaller, their competitive advantage is weaker. Um, but the trajectory at which they are growing their competitiveness is, is um, very extremely rapid. So um, when it comes to investing in compounders, we want to see that trajectory going in the right direction um, for the reason that, you know, if we are out there to hold the company for the long run and for them to keep reinvesting money um, on behalf of us, uh, we, we want to make sure that their durability is there. And then the next thing we want to see is that they are going after a large market, right? Riding on a very strong circular tailwind. Um, again, because when we are investing in a company, we are passing our money, our capital to the management to reinvest on behalf of us. So sitting on a tailwind definitely helps um, if they are able to keep reinvesting for many years. Uh, that's how compounding um, actually takes place. And three, we really want to look at um, management who have our interests at heart. You know, are they just looking to build an empire when, you know, when they're investing, they're not really looking at how much returns this is bringing for shareholders. Um, so when, when these three things align, then I think we have a very nice uh, so-called compounder um, that we find. And, you know, when I find these, I just want to buy them um, and monitor them. Not, not so much. Um, I, I guess there's a lot of people who, you know, they are very proud when, they, you know, buy and hold forever. But I, I mean, I would say buy and monitor, right? If the thesis change, then, you know, we got to change our mind. Right. So, um, you know, competitive advantage is a very big word. And of course, I think when people Google that term, they will find all sorts of versions or types of competitive advantage. Um, what would you say? I'm not going to ask you to name all of them, obviously. Yeah. But what would you say are some of the advantages that you favor? Because not all of them are created equal, let's say. Yeah. So um, there's two favorite of mine. And there, there's, a, there's a good reason why I really favor them. is because... Um, 
they actually grow with skill. So, I mean, I'm sure you guys read the letter by Nick Slip. So one is yes. uh, skilled economic share, right? Yeah. Um, whereby uh, as you grow, um, you know, your margins increase, your, your profitability increase, but you don't take all the money off the table. You actually give them back to your customers. Yeah. Yep. So when you reward your customers, your customers in turn will reward with you, uh, reward you with more sales. Yep. So as you grow, um, you know, um, your operations become uh, way better than the next company better but yet you pass it back to the customer and so as you grow you become stronger over time yeah but it's very important because um over time usually the case for more com- most companies is as they grow they become weaker right mm. they are not able to they're not as nimble they don't move as fast they become complacent um but for companies like costco or even amazon you know that if there's one thing customers will forever love it is low prices yeah. And so, you know, as they grow, we, we don't need to be worried that they'll be displaced because their key value proposition is um, the value, low prices. And just by growing alone, they will be able to sustain their competitive advantage. Um, and so that, that's just a very beautiful mode, right? Very beautiful competitive advantage because when it comes to investing, especially when we are looking for compounders, durability is the most important thing. We want them yes. to have enduring success. Um, so that, that is one of my favorite. Then the other, uh, the other of my favorite one is network effect, you know, which is just, um, you know, every time there's a new user coming in, it actually makes the network stronger. I mean, the classic example for this is Facebook, Instagram, or even YouTube. Whenever there's a new user or new content creator that come in, um, the, the platform just becomes better as a result. And, you know, there's always a critical mass that the this platform have to hit. And once they hit, right, um, it, it's just very, very difficult to disrupt them. And just like all content creators, I mean, if we have a podcast or we have anything, we must be on YouTube because that's just where the traffic oh, yeah. You yeah. know, like, and, and I wouldn't say they're doing it for free because they do revenue split, but for companies like Facebook or this, um, you know, they, they don't do revenue split and yet all the con- content creators will want to go onto that platform or even for That's Twitter, right. you know, I, I will have to go onto that platform <laughs> if I want to get um, any form of attention. So anytime the company grows, uh, it actually becomes stronger and stronger over time. So, um, so these two are my favorite network effect and the skill economic shed because uh, as the company grows, they actually become stronger over time. And, and it's very important for me because I place a lot of emphasis um, on the durability of a company. Yeah, actually, the, when you mentioned about the, the Amazon effect, right? Pat Dossie actually did this um, experiment, you know, Thomas, I don't know if you're aware. He was giving a talk at Google and he actually asked everyone in the room, uh, once you want to buy something, right? And you found it at Amazon, are you going to, how many of you actually go to another website to compare? Yeah. You want to take a guess what was the, the number? I, I would Percentation. I would think maybe five percent or something. Would, yeah, it was less. It was less. Uh, five percent or less. Right? Less, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's like the moment you you found it on Amazon, right? You are very unlikely to go and find another because you know that they are already at uh they, their price point is probably the best for you already actually. Yeah. What what I found Nick Sleep's points to be really good is this idea that a you give back to your customers, and actually they don't really care essentially about um what analysts think, right? Because the analysts would be saying, what, you have not changed the prices of your hot dog for 26 years, right? Uh, And, you know, it's like razor thin margins, like where's the breathing space and all that. But uh, he was just replowing everything back, keeping everything the same. Uh, And that gave him a lot of uh, bargaining power, suppliers, et cetera, et cetera. For those of you who are listening, go check out Nick Sleep's letters. It's uh, probably up there with Buffett's ones. It's one of the best. Um, But uh, now I want to go into like, so you've learned all these things. 
and 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 you found them so useful, and obviously you have started applying them in to your own investments. What would you say so far is your best and your worst investment, and maybe explain why they were your best and why they were your worst. I I think my best investment is probably Google and Amazon. Um, over the past maybe five to ten years. Um, I mean they are the best because and it is very. Okay, I wouldn't say it's easy because I'm going to get a lot of hate for that. Um, <laughs> I mean, when, when, when we think about um, the, their products, right? Like Google, how can anyone not live um, without Google, right? When we think of that kind of services, the search, um, the Google Maps, or even YouTube, right? It is very hard to imagine a world whereby, you know, yeah. you don't have Gmail, so on and so forth. So um, there will always be a lot of bad news from time to time. I mean, because that's just what mainstream media does, right? To get attention, everything must be pessimistic. Everything must be uh, breaking, you know, in order yeah, to get your yeah. attention. And when investing in companies like that's um, very well within my circle of competence and the metrics is clear as day for, for me to track, um, customer satisfaction for Amazon is always going up. Um, you know, more and more people are coming onto the platform. They are onboarding more and more prime members, so on and so forth. Um, it is it is very easy for me to hold through this company through, you know, a lot of volatility. Um, if I talk about my worst investment till date, it's probably Alibaba, but I, I don't believe that uh, it is a wrong wrong investment choice um, because um, there, there's this book by Annie Duke, which is Thinking in Bets, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, I love uh, that book. <laughs> yeah, that, that book was another aha moment for me. Like um, when it comes to investing, it is like playing in poker. The results could be bad, but your process, uh, you know, might be correct. Or the results is good, but your process might have been wrong because there's always the element of luck there. And when investing, mm. it is always about probability. Um, yeah, so um, Alibaba, I, I mean, I think the like everybody would know it is due to the government regulations, so on and so forth. But I don't think the government is out there to crush them like what a lot of uh, mainstream media is saying. Like they call it Commons Prosperity Donation and so on and so forth. Um but I, I disagree quite heavily with that and I'm quite willing to hold uh, Alibaba true. Um, yeah, so basically these this two or rather three companies, would be, uh, two of them would be my best investment yeah. and then Alibaba probably till date is probably my, um, the one that gave me more horrible results. So Yeah, but um, I think it's the time horizon. Sorry, yeah, it's yeah. just the, probably the time horizon in which we are recording this. That's why it looks bad. Yeah. But, yeah. Maybe maybe I, I, I asked the question about your worst investment. What is the worst investment that you've realized, I guess? Because yeah. as you rightly point out, right? Alibaba, I mean, the story is still unfolding, right? Yeah. Nothing is settled yet. Hey, today, China just released the, yeah. the rules for regulatory yeah. listing. So it's already a step in the right direction. But, but of course, on Twitter, it's settled, right? Because yeah. if you lose 20%, you are automatically wrong already, right? <laughs> so, um, but... Yeah, which is an investment that um, you know you use any Duke's example just now of uh, good process, bad results. So that seems to be Alibaba's story for you right now. But we'll perhaps share one story where wrong process, bad results, and maybe even wrong process, right results. You know. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if I were to think about wrong process, um, right results, it's definitely uh got to do with dividend investing because okay so for i mean out of 14 years of investing i think for the first 
six to maybe six years, yeah, five to six years, I was just investing in dividend stocks, basically mm. company that, that cannot grow. Um, mm, mm, mm. Because I mean, they are, they are putting out all their cash um, to shareholders, right? Um, yeah, so I mean, there's heavy opportunity cost there. I mean, of course, back then I was very happy, right? Every every year I get five to 6%, so on and so forth. Um, mm, mm. So, I mean, that was, I, I would call that lousy results because, I mean, I mean, if you were to think of opportunity cost, I could have uh, done so much more, grow my wealth so much more. But because um, that feedback um, didn't hit me um, much early on. And I think one that I probably lost a bit of money on is, uh, I think it's called First Read, if I never remember long, wrongly. They, mm. they hold a bunch of... Um, property in Indonesia, hospitals uh, in Indonesia. So, and you know, the currency depreciation back then really hit the company quite badly. Right. Yeah, so for the longest time, uh, yeah, for most of my portfolio, which was just focused on dividends, right? Um, the, the process that was wrong is that I should have focused on total shareholder returns. Um, yeah, I don't want to shit on dividend companies, but um, <laughs> it, 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 it is not wrong, but we have to focus on total shareholder returns, which encompasses your capital returns and your dividend returns. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we always have to think in terms of opportunity cost. Like if you're looking at this set of companies, um, what is the opportunity cost that you're incurring as a result? Yeah, so nothing wrong with looking at dividend counters, but you know we always must um, be uh, take everything into account. You must take total shareholder returns into account, not just your dividend yield. Yeah, I I want to segue a little bit uh, into probably the reasoning for why you started off dividend investing. Was it because of your risk appetite or the the your circle of competence that you felt that? when you started off investing into dividend, it was a much safer bet for the lack of a better word. Was that the reason? I, I think it was just the, um, uh, what was trendy back then. You know, all, I see. all these super popular bloggers, um, or, you know, they, they were all always talking about dividends. And so when I surround um, my information intake um, with, you know, influencers who are always talking about dividends, uh, and then naturally I, I gravitated towards that. Um, it wasn't until uh, I, you know, YouTube became more popular, so on and so forth. Then, you know, I, I became, ex- I, I got exposed to other styles of thinking. And the aha moment was, um, I can't remember who was the one who said it, but we must always think in terms of total shareholder returns. Mm-hmm. If we just look at one metric, then it is just myopic, right? We are, we are going to miss out a lot of stuff. I yeah, and, and the truth is a lot of dividend paying company, if the yield is 5% or more, it's probably because they got no more, um, opportunities for them to invest. They are probably at the tail end of the S-curve and almost going down, which is why they have so much money um, to, to give out and which is why the market is not putting a very high price. Uh, mm. Hence, we are able to get that 5 to 6%. I mean, if it is a very strong company that, you know, that they are able to give out dividends just because when they grow, they don't need capital, like your MasterCard and Visa, they're going to be priced extremely expensive. They are dividend paying companies, but the dividend is probably like 1%. Mm. And, and that is just a fact of life. Um, if we are looking at companies that are paying like heavy dividends, it's just probably they are nearing the tail end of the S-curve and the market recognizes that, which is why the market don't put a very high price on those dividend counters. Yeah. Just one last question before we move on, uh, which is your understanding of risk. Since you mentioned that uh, you got into dividend investing more because it was a popular, but has your definition of risk actually change and evolve uh, throughout your investing style because I you know one of your tweeters actually said that risk is not volatility and actually MJ and I we get a lot of brickbats because we say that 
No, risk is yeah. actually not volatility. <laughs> so yeah, what from the robo advisor crowd, la. Yeah, yeah robo advisor crowd, la, Which you know, and it's taught in finance. You know, risk is volatility. Yeah. You know, so I I want to really want to hear your thoughts on it, Thomas. Yeah, I mean, risk is definitely not volatility. La. Volatility is opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least that is what I think, right? So, I mean, risk is always we have to go back to the fundamentals of the company. Um, access, you know, how likely this company is going to be around 10 years, 5 years, 10 years from today, you know, and why do they deserve to be a bigger company than today? And so when we are assessing risk, we are trying to stress test um, whether this company can withstand against competition, whether this company, you know, in case of a crisis like COVID causing everything to shut down, are they able to survive without cash inflow coming for the next few years? So that is risk. We have to think like business owners. When we are talking about price movements, it is really just the stock market as an auction market, right? People are bidding prices up and down every single day. And I mean, you wouldn't go to the auction market and every time the price moves up and down, then you call that risk. It is not risk, right? It is just, um, I, I don't know, maybe human psychology taking place. And it is really a feature, not a bug, right? That the prices are supposed to move up and down every single day. I mean, so definitely that that is not, uh, that is not risk. I mean... I'm not sure whether it is the robo-advisors that's uh, preaching that, but I mean, when I when I say that on Twitter, I, I do get one or two comments like, how could you say that, uh, you know, volatility is <laughs> not risk? And then what is risk? You know, like um, market moving up and down is, it happened every every single day. I mean, every year, the market will definitely, you know, have some drop. If you look just look at the 52-week high and low for even the biggest company, your Apple, Microsoft, and, and I mean, the difference is usually about 40%, but right. has the business fundamental changed 40%? Probably not. Yeah. It is really just the emotions swinging and it is usually temporary in, in nature. So risk comes from not knowing um, what you're owning, comes from not understanding the fundamentals or it comes from, you know, maybe the business is anti-fragile, but it definitely does not come from share price movement. Yeah, I think I like Lilu's quote best. Uh, risk is permanent loss of capital. Exactly. Simple and sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's actually yeah. not easy for people to tell because... I think people are also not thinking it bets, right? Like they cannot imagine that, hey, you know, uh, that sort of upside downside kind of thinking where, yeah, I could lose everything, but I could also make, you know, multiples more. And I think that's that's very difficult for a lot of people to think. Like. But that's just my point of view. Um, one thing I want to get into is, I mean, you talk a lot about your past, right? But how about, you know, looking forward now uh, in terms of what, Outside the three that you mentioned, right? Mm. Um, unless maybe you still feel that they are great, uh, your, your best ideas right now. What would you say are some of your best ideas in terms of right now, like going forward, that stocks that you think have a really great potential and then fit into that three-step criteria that you talk about of, uh, you know, trajectory of more size of the opportunity and of course, great management. Yeah, so I, I am generally not a macro investor, right? But um, there, there's a lot of talk by my friends in VC, so on and so forth, that the mar capital market, they're not handing out mar uh, money freely like last time. Mm. So if I am looking for opportunities today, I want to look at companies that are not uh, reliant or at the mercy of the capital market. Uh, again, this goes back to the concept of risk, right? You don't want the company to be um, fragile. You want it to be anti-fragile. That's right. And, and so like um, a few opportunities that I, I look at recently is probably, I mean, one of them is Netflix um, because they recently missed analyst estimates, right? In terms of ah. their future forecasts um, because of the COVID impact. But here's how I see it. Um, there is currently still about 800 
to 900 million in terms of uh, paid t- uh, cable TV you know, users out there. And Netflix mm. really only have 200 million users. The runway is still long, but because of the COVID pull forward effect, um, you know, the most recent quarter, they're not able to hit the numbers. But when we look at uh, Netflix in terms of their subscriber growth, we really must look at it in two years block. We cannot look at it on a year-on-year year, year year basis mm. because mm. there's this very strong um, pull forward impact. Yeah, and so I and management has been very clear that um, you know they expect operating margins to actually increase three percent um yearly over time, mm. not in a straight line, straight line of course, because um they are going to reinvest heavily into creating new content. But I I do think that Netflix is one of it's going to be it's going to maintain its leadership in the streaming industry, because ultimately it it goes back to a skill game skill game right whoever is able to put out the best content out there. Uh, you know, divide the cost over the most amount of subscribers, you know, then, you know, they are able, going to be able to um, protect their position over time. Um, and, and this was really one change in my thinking. Also, I, I used to avoid um, companies that consumes a lot of capital. Mm. Um, but then again, when you look at companies like Amazon and Netflix, right, it is exactly because they are quite capital intensive, but yet they are able to scale, right? You know, they invest in one thing, they are able to scale it to, you know, everybody around the world. Um, so, so that is quite a different um, different way of capital intensity as compared to maybe a shopping mall. When you look at a shopping mall, it is capital intensive. Mm. But, you know, they cannot provide their services to, you know, globally. It's just, you know, to their... Very, very localized. Exactly. So, so they can't scale. So when it comes to capital intensity, there's also a difference between um, once you put in that capital, are you able to scale um, to an unlimited, um, so-called unlimited amount of customers? And, and you know, Netflix... Has that uh, and when you look at the amount of award they have been getting right for their shows, uh, it is not mm. an easy fit. Uh, the yeah. most amount of Google searches, you know, most amount of nominations, so on and so forth. Yeah, so I, I think that company probably is a bit misunderstood by the market today, uh, just because they miss um, the near term estimates, a Wall Street estimate, and, and this is really where volatility, I, I think, is an opportunity. Uh, again, this is this is not recommendation to buy or sell, but this is just <laughs> yeah, yeah, just yeah. me thinking out loud, right? Yeah, but basically, I I, I do think that Netflix um has a very very smart management read Hastings on Helm also, mm-hmm. um going into gaming. Not sure whether that will be successful, but you know what needs to be done. You know you can be sure that read Hastings will definitely do it. You you saw that you know we we saw that Netflix you know become from a DVD rental company yeah into streaming, and then you know subsequently they started. Um, small in terms of uh, financing their own television shows back in 2011. Mm. And when they recognized the threat um, that, you know, one day all these uh, traditional companies, if they want to go into streaming, they would definitely cut off their supply of shows. That's when he really gets the pedal, you know, and really start going into even movie productions, right? You, we seldom see a production company doing both television and movie production at the same time because they re- require very different skill set and That's different right. level of investment. But Netflix, just within a few years, um, with so little experience, they are able to do both um, quite successfully. And today, you know, they're one of the biggest producers of shows and movies. Mm. Yeah, so, so, I mean, he has a very strong track record of pivoting the company when it's required. And furthermore, they're really sitting on a circular tailwind. And, you know, I think streaming is really the way to go. I mean, I can't imagine myself turning into Channel 8, Mediacorp channels, um, so on and so forth nowadays. Um, it, it has to be streaming because just because, like, you know, you watch whatever you want on demand and, and it is just much more convenient at a lower price. Yeah. Actually, I've got 
uh, a few questions related to that because uh, obviously I miss Netflix. So I, I stab my heart every time I think about it because mm-hmm. I'm a big <laughs> believer because I actually watched TiVo. In right. the past, you know, TiVo was the, in a way, recording. would you agree? Yeah, it was right. a bit too ahead of his time, I guess, right? Yes. But here, here comes the the competition today because uh, I have children, two kids. Right. And I find myself more attracted to Disney Plus kind of right. content versus that of Netflix. So it's more catered to adults, obviously, but as a family content, I would look to Disney Plus. How do you see that competition? That's the first question. And second thing, Amazon Prime also has, you know, started going into this. And, you know, I, I love the way they package it as, you know, Prime Service plus the movie and all that. Why do you think Amazon Prime is lacking to what, you know, obviously Disney had a head start, then Netflix caught up and all that kind of thing. So first question is, what do you think of Disney Plus as a threat? And secondly, why do you think Amazon Prime or even new guys coming into the streaming service, how would they break that barriers into entry into the streaming service? I think you're absolutely right that this is a very competitive industry with, um, I mean, not just the smaller players coming in. Also, I mean, even big tech, Amazon, Apple TV is also coming in. I mean, yeah. I think Apple was the one who won the Oscars award for, for this year or something. Yeah, and you know, I, I hear a lot of people call Disney Plus the 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 cheap childcare, you know. <laughs> you, you turn it on, then you can do your work, right? Then your kids oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, it's like a childcare, you know, uh, but much cheaper. Like, you know, Ch- childcare on demand. Childcare yeah, child on, on demand. Wow. You know, you don't need to check in with the babysitter whether you've got time, <laughs> appointment and all that, you know, but yeah. you just turn it on, your kid will quite quiet, sit there yeah. and, and just listen, right? Um, but but I guess it really boils back down to um you know, a lot of industry, I feel, can be disrupted, uh, could potentially be disrupted by Amazon, um, Google, uh, Apple, so on and so forth. But um, there's always a good reason why they haven't been so successful lately. It's just because that is not the focus of their game. Like when you look at companies like Afterpay, why why weren't they disrupted by MasterCard or Visa? It's, it's just the focus of the management is not there. Whereas for Netflix, right, it is really their bread and butter. And when we look at the specific metrics in terms of um, how, how much customers churn, they actually have the lowest in the entire industry. Um, I think it's 2 to 3%, whereas I think Disney is high single-digit percentage. And then for the rest of them, like Phoenix, so on and so forth, it is double-digit. Mm. So they, they don't have that stickiness to their platform. And for a lot of people, if you don't have Netflix, um, you know, a lot of your friends in, I mean, those, the Americans, they, you know, your friends will be talking about this specific show that came up. And then, yeah. you know, generally people, social, we are social beings, right? And then we, we want to participate in that conversation. And that's where people will start, uh, you know, they, they want to own Netflix, hold on to have a Netflix subscription just to, you know, catch their, their favorite shows and so on and so forth. And again, the Disney Plus, uh, right? I, I don't, I, I mean, definitely they are a great service. I have two subscriptions. Um, but I don't think it's, uh, you know, whereby only one platform is able to survive. I, I think most of the time people will have maybe two or even three subscription. Um, simply because right now, when we look at the cable TV cost in America, it is about 80 to $90 per month. Mm. But when we look at what Netflix and Disney Plus is charging now, it is just, um, I mean, even if you hold to both of them, you are still saving a, a lot of money. Correct. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, they have very different style of production. Our Disney shows is actually quite, uh, usually quite different from what Netflix does. Um, so, I, I mean, I see most people having two sets of subscription um, rather than just one. Um, and then competition-wise, it is really 
um, whether management will going to continue to invest in new content, so on and so forth, really grow the value proposition for, for users. And we, we, we are able to see that they are not just having the lowest churn, but they are also consistently raising prices every single year. But yet, mm. uh, most of their subscribers are not leaving the platform, which really demonstrates the stickiness, right? Because I, I, I mean, I believe that Netflix have been underpricing their service for many, many years. I mean, we get so much shows just for, just for such as cheap. Um, subscription fee, right? And so with that, um, they have demonstrated that they are able to raise prices 5 to 10%, not 5 to 8% consistently every single year and users are not falling off, um, which is why while it is a competitive industry, they, they have shown a track record of delivering sufficient value that their subscribers um, generally want to stay on as a user. And they are, they are extremely subscriber friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it is a marketing move, but I think earlier this year or last year, they actually uh, automatically unsubscribe you if you haven't used Netflix for two years, right? Um, which is just a very, very uh, user-centric movement uh, action. When we look at uh, companies like New York Times or you know any of the, uh, it could be Bloomberg, it could be Harvard Business uh, Review. You, if you want to cancel your subscription, you can't do it online. You have to call the customer hotline and That's the customer true. hotline will talk to you for one hour before you can cancel. Create a lot of friction. Exactly, a lot of friction, but you know, customers hate that. And when we are looking to come for companies to invest at in, right, we want to look for companies that actually delight com- uh, customers. And you know, Netflix is very, very customer centric. So anybody who haven't logged into their account for two years, they automatically um, stop deducting your credit card and then just wow. cancel your account for you. And then, you know, I, I think that really, if customers, customers would definitely be happy, the, the trust would build for the company. Um, the reason why I say it's a marketing stunt because it's only like 0.1% of their subscriber base who don't lock in for, for two years, but it generate, uh, generated a lot of um, goodwill. Uh, yeah, a lot of goodwill. Like the, the media will report, wow, this is a company that automatically unsubscribe users. You know, it is not, not just about money. They're really thinking for the users. So, so they have a very good branding um, and the consumers love them. Um, you know, it, it is not like some companies whereby consumers hate them, but they have to use them. So this is a product whereby you know uh, consumers are you know love them and are willing to put their money just for that, uh, that entertainment um, that that Netflix actually brings to them. Yeah, thanks for your insight. Yeah, yeah. I only have one follow up to that, which is when you look at Netflix, I mean they're a juggernaut essentially, right? They they essentially reinvest every dollar that they have into the company. Right. Um. What other ways apart from what they're already doing right now? Because my assumption is that yes, although there's only uh, there's still a long runway in terms of streaming, right? What other ways do you think they can create a new business? So to, to give a sense, right? Uh, of course, it's not nothing is ever the same, but like what Disney did, right? Because essentially they are following somewhat the Disney route in that they always have to do high quality content. You need to own the content, the IP, and all that. And what Disney has done over the past, you know, since Walt Disney essentially, uh, is to create um, verti- uh, not verticals, horizontal businesses, right, that are linked to their brand. So when they come out with a really good movie, Cinderella, uh, not Cinderella, let's say Mickey Mouse or whatever, then there's there's a theme park, right? Then maybe there's merchandise. Then there's all these other things that really, you know, hook people in more because ancillary businesses that are related exactly. to the team yeah yeah team parks whatever it is do you, do you think netflix should go down that path and if not what what other areas can they really uh, branch into 
Um, I, I think that that is a very good point, right? Because when it comes to Disney, you know, when they create content, there's, uh, creating content is a capital intensive uh, endeavor, but you know, they're able to monetize through many, many other ways, selling their IP, franchise, right. the products, so on and so forth. And for companies like Costco, you know, they sell, they sell oil, petrol cheap, they sell ice cream, hot dog bun cheap, you know, but they earn through the membership. Um, I think for Netflix, um, the most recent Morgan Stanley tech conference, um, the management actually came up to, to discuss advertisement. So for many, many, many years, they have been very against um, advertisement. But from the latest tech conference, they actually um, show signs of relaxing um, their stance on advertisement. And I suspect they are going to look at Disney Plus because Disney Plus is actually quite keen on including advertisement for their paid users. So Disney Plus is likely going to have multiple tiers. Um, one tier by, you know, strictly just paying a subscription fee. So you pay more, but you don't see advertisement. Then there's going to be a cheaper tier whereby you see a, a bit of advertisement, but you pay a much lower fee. So I, I think the management has always been quite proactive in terms of doing A-B testing. And I think if Disney Plus is able to show some signs whereby, um, you know, they are able to um, pull this off successfully, whereby they don't lose a lot of subscribers as a result of them putting advertisement on the Disney Plus homepage. Then I think there's a there, there may be a chance whereby Netflix may follow suit. And advertisement definitely is a, is quite a big market, right? And, and I think there's also, the second thing is there there is quite a lot of signs pointing towards uh, Netflix having a lot of uh, influence over demand for products in terms of mm. outside streaming. So when we look at Witcher 3, right? Once um, Witcher 3 got released on Netflix, the book sales went up. Um, the game the game sales actually went up also. Queen's so, Gambit. Exactly. It's, yeah. There, there is this ripple effect to other products, right? And I think it, it, it is definitely an opportunity for management to further monetize um, their content. And I'm quite sure um, sooner or later they will. Um, furthermore, we are able to see them um, their margins actually being quite decent now. So, I mean, with the COVID pull uh, forward effect, right? Pull in all the demand in one shot. Their operating margins actually shot up to 20%, you know, for that year alone. I mean, management say that they're going to reinvest more heavily with this money. Um, but I, I mean, it gives us a very good glimpse at its steady state, right? What the profitability profile is going to be like for Netflix. And I think over time, it will become better and better, similar to Amazon. Yeah, makes a lot of sense actually. Didn't think about the ad, the ad uh, angle. Okay, I I think the next part I want to go into is also um, something I found very interesting on your blog, which is the importance of an investing journal. And I think this probably ties into Twitter as well, maybe later on. But you know, investing journal is not talked a lot about in investing circles. Some people have it, some people do it. You know, some people are putting on their phone, their physical notebooks, but. What would you say is a the importance of uh, to you uh, for of a an investing journal, and number two would be um, how do you do it? Is that I, the right way to do it? I I think for a lot of um, a lot of investors, like when when we you know invest, um, writing putting down our thoughts in writing actually help us think better. Um, and so one way I like to do my investing journal is, and you know it it has to be something that's super brief because when there's a lot of friction, most probably most of us. Um, will not keep up with the habit. So, I mean, I'll write out my short thesis and I'll do a quick pre-mortem. You know, you know, there's post-mortem right after die, so right. I try to investigate. But, you know, we always want to think about what are the, you know, what are the potential riskiest outcome 
we, we can think of. Um, and so that if something goes wrong and we go back to revisit our thesis, we are very clear about our thought process back then, what went wrong and, you know, what do we have to change about our, our thinking of investments so that, you know, going forward, we can be better. Because I, I think for a lot of uh, us, right, when, when we invest or when we do anything, if we don't write down our thoughts, usually we will forget like why we mm. established that position in the first place. And also when the market is volatile, um, I mean, even after so many years of investing, it is still not easy to sit through volatility, even though, you know, I understand the company well. So that's when I like to look back at my journal and, you know, really think through why I invest in this company in the first place and what the potential it could be, um, you know, so that helps me sit through uh, this kind of volatility as well. Yeah, so it's really um, up down to two things. One is, you know, helping me become more aware of the risk I'm taking through writing down my thesis and the pre-mortem. And then the second thing is to, you know, it becomes easier for me to evaluate um, if my investment don't go well, what went wrong with my thinking, because it is all there in black and white. Um, I read a research before. I can't remember which author is, is it from, but we humans really do have the um, inclination to forget um, our past decision-making process. So if we don't write it down, most of the time, we, we, we won't be able to, you know, remember what are the, exactly the, the specific details as to why we make that decision and what our processes are. That's true. That's true. Um, do you, like, so would you consider like your, your Twitter something like a, a little bit like a journal or do you think that's something that's totally different in, in objective? Uh, a bit different because when it comes to Twitter, right? Um, I I have to refine it quite a fair bit. So there's a, mm. a bit of friction there. I do put my thesis out there. You know, whenever I want people to come and criticize, and I need devil advocates because I I rather people come and criticize before you know before the Mister Market come and criticize me. Yeah, yeah. That's where real money is lost, right? But um, my journal is really super low friction. Um, it's really like a, a few lines. I don't try and make beautify the words so and so forth. But when it comes to Twitter, you know, I have to make sure it, it is it flows nicely for my readers. Uh, you know, so in in a way, I still write my thesis so and so forth. But my journal is super messy and so and so forth. Yeah, it really must reduce friction in order to inculcate that habit. I see. Um, just a, a little bit peeling into your journal and all that kind of thing. Right. Um, where has been, what has been the weirdest place, uh, that you've gotten a stock idea and then you start thinking, then the 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 light bulb start start going up, and then where do you think, uh, have you experienced that someone was so bullish about it, but immediately or quite spontaneously because of the mental models you've developed in the past that you say. This is a horrible idea, you know. Probably can you give us an example because of the way you write your journal and then... <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to think. So yeah. a company that's overhyped by the market. Yeah. You know, like 90% of people, hey, Thomas is a good one. Here's my thesis, whatever. And then you said, hmm, I just journal a few, few steps and then, hey, no. Ah. <laughs> you know? Wow, this is going to offend a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely cannot talk about car companies. No. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, let me think. Uh, okay, I, I mean, I, I guess back then, it's probably Grab, I guess. Um, mm. When Grab first IPO, there was a lot of hype. But I mean, even when we think about tech companies. Um, so, I mean, it is always about becoming a platform, you know, generating that flywheel effect, so on and so forth. Uh, 
So a lot of my readers actually ask me about Grab when it IPO. Is it going to be a good investment or not? Right. But when we look at companies like Grab, Uber, or even Leaf, right, it is not enough to onboard a lot of active users every month. We must also look at how sticky the platform is. And, and the truth is for a company in, in with this kind of business model, um, users are, are free to go whenever they want. And, yeah, and yeah. really, ultimately, the, the competitiveness of that platform is who can offer the cheapest price. And, you know, you are going to be in a struggle between the customer, yourself, your shareholders, and also the regulators. Because when yes. you increase the take rate too much, which is essentially the commission, um, you know, the regulators will come after your ass. Um, because ultimately, the regulators, they want to be bolted in so and so forth. You know, they have to look out for the small businesses and also yeah. the users. And so it's really not a very good investment, even though there was a lot of hype because Grab mm. is a company everybody know, everybody uses. But when I just look at the the stickiness of that platform, if I was to just do a pre-mortem why this platform, uh, there's something wrong with this platform. It, we call this the leaky bucket problem. Like you put in a lot of money, but you know, there's always a lot of holes in that bucket and you know, um, all your investment will just leak away um, when your users have so much um, other choices out there. You know, you, you may say that, you know, it is the biggest one that's, uh, you know, flywheel effect, you know, more people come in than the merchant riders all want to come on in also. It's true. But then again, you, you don't really have a very strong pricing power there. People will just mm. leave the platform. Yeah. Where has been like an idea that you thought that, ah, this probably didn't work. It was so unpopular, but because of your journaling, and right. the framework they've developed. They say, hey, it may not look so bad, you know, because I'm, I'm trying to like highlight potential examples where journaling actually helps aid uh, people with biases, which we right. all have, you know, right? And unless you have a framework and you put it down, then it becomes clearer because most of the time we are clouded by a lot of these news headlines and all that. So was there an idea where uh, it was not very sexy, not very appealing, but because you journaled it and then, Boom, it looks attractive. Yeah, so I mean, if I were to talk about one mistake whereby if I were to revisit my journal, uh, I mean, it, it would have to be Tesla, right? I mean, for many, many years, I thought Tesla would not make it. But the, I mean, the truth is at scale, you know, right now they are actually operating um, profit or rather they are, they are actually profitable already. They are free cash flow generated. They don't have to rely on outside capital already. I, I guess that is one, uh, one example whereby, you know, after my journaling, um, Sometimes it is really, you have to envision, try and envision a future. But for Tesla, I, I mean, I have to admit, it is very, very difficult for me um, mm. because I mean, probably it's outside my, my circle of competence, so on and so forth. But you know, that that is really one big miss. And um, you know, everybody is saying like, it's going to be bankrupt, so on and so forth, but somehow they made it. So that that is definitely one um, good example whereby, you know, if I were to revisit my thought process, what went wrong? I mean, it is probably that, you know, I'm unable to envision that at scale what they could have achieved because for most car companies, they are not exactly super profitable mm. but when you are able to own the whole supply chain. So, I mean, so the, the, the strength of Tesla, um, as we have seen during this pandemic era, is they own the whole supply chain. So there's no right. supply chain problem. They are able to manufacture it really from scratch to finish themselves. And so when you have a business like that, it's going to take an insane amount of investment upfront um, and you're going to be unprofitable for super long. But what you have at the end of the day is that you have a very, very resilient business model. And yeah. you know, they really demonstrated their strength um, in this case, in terms, in terms of the car quality, in terms of their production capabilities, 
um, the media is always going to write like, you know, uh, they're not able to meet their production numbers, at least in the past. Right now, no, nobody really talks about that. But, you know, yeah. it, it really shows the strength um, of that. And, you know, in, in a sense, when I was looking at it back then, you know, it was very hard to see the profitability and stuff. But I, I didn't really get what Elon was trying to build. And he's mm. trying, trying, really trying to make the business uh, more anti-fragile in, in that sense. I mean, yeah. I mean, Elon himself also thought it was going to fail. So today, today he will say, "Yeah, I also didn't expect it." But that's that's really good insights, right? And I think in the same vein of John's question, right? Was there a tweet, right, that you write and you put in a lot of effort and you think, "Yeah, you know, I think this is going to blow up." And then how about the reverse, <laughs> right, where you just didn't really put much, but you're like, you know. The, the Gary V inside me says, uh, you know, I got to put out something, you know, regardless. Then you just simply put out and then it blows up, right? Do you do you have any examples of this? Yeah, definitely, right. Um, yeah, so I mean, one example is I, I did a summary of uh, Jeff Bezos' letter from all the way from 1997 until 2020, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was going to blow up um, but in the end not not many um, and I mean there's always the other set of examples also like I spent maybe like five minutes writing then boom yeah. one million impression um, yeah so so that, there's definitely uh, issues like that and I guess the key is to when if you are a content creator you just need to keep hitting the publish button and um, the other the other aspect to it, right, is sometimes when a content don't go out well, it is usually how you present it. Sometimes the content is fine, but mm. you know when you're writing um, the hook, so and so, so like for your YouTube, it, it probably is the title, so on and so forth, or your featured image, what words you want to put. Um, for Twitter, you know, it is gonna be um, you know how you present that information in the first place that gives the reader the feeling like if I don't read, I'm gonna miss out a part. My, my life is not going to be complete. You know, you have to give mm-hmm. them the feeling. Yeah, so, I mean, there's definitely going to be a lot of times whereby the content doesn't fly. Then a lot of times you just have to change the way you present the content. Mm-hmm. Um, then maybe it will perform better the other time, the next time. Yeah. Right, right. So then is there one where uh, it, it, like, it surprised you that it even blew up in the first place? I, I, think, um, I think those more low low effort tweets would usually be like book recommendations. I have no idea why why book recommendations always go up, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess people really like uh, book recommendations, but usually those take like 10 minutes or so, but it usually... That's right, that's right. Yeah, so so I, I'm not sure why also. I mean, even until today, some tweets that blow up very low effort, I, I'm also not sure why why they blow up. Uh, yeah, but, but as content creators, uh, yeah, we just look at the data and then see what works, what doesn't work, and then we just double down on, on what works. Right. Then, then how about tweet, uh, tweet threads that you've made that you recommend? Like, this is a, this is a Thomas Chua, you know, thread, right? How do you, yeah, if you have any. I think the Warren Buffett one definitely is one. Um, I actually summarized Warren Buffett letters from his first shareholder letter in Berkshire all the way until the latest, latest shareholder. So, I mean, um, I, I think Warren Buffett was one of the ones that really gave me a big aha moment. And I felt like a lot of readers can benefit from this. But, you know, it, it is it is actually tough because each shareholder letter is like 10, 20, 30 pages. Right. Yeah, and, and it is very worthy. So I, I try to really uh, take out the key points because sometimes on a yearly basis he will repeat certain things because he's, he's, he has to assume 
that there are some shareholders who never read or you know may have forgotten because his writing principle is he's going to imagine his sister who know nothing about the investing right. stock market so it's going to be a bit repetitive sometimes so I, I really take out the essence of his shareholders letters um and so so that you know my readers is able to grasp the essence and the key takeaways one from warren buffett you know within just maybe 10 minutes or so and so like if you were to go to my twitter page right it, it is the pin tweet basically yeah just see right there yeah I love I love that tweet to be honest, you know. Uh, and I think there were so many things that, for those who have not read the classic like, this is virtually the Bible of value investing, yeah. right? Uh, it, it cuts uh, across many many aspects that uh, I would say as myths today. Like for example, people you know things like value versus growth, things like you know risk things like, you know, uh, operating leverage and all these kind of things. I think many people assume they know Warren Buffett, but until, unless you read yeah. the classics many, many times, like Monish Prabhupada, you know, I, I just, I just listened to him, right? He said, right, he has re-read the letters how many times I lost count, you know, to be honest, and yet he still gets new things, you know? So love yeah. the tweet, love, love the tweet, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that is a must-do for every budding investor, uh, whether you want to invest the way he does, I think, the amount of things he shares is just amazing. And speaking of that, right, is there was there a standout year for you in terms of like, whoa, as you say, you know, there's no repetitive stuff. Yeah. Was there one year that really stuck to your mind and say, yeah, this is this is one of my favorite. Or it can be years, like, I guess. It doesn't have to be one year only. The the truth is, um, I, I don't know which year which content is from because sure, sure. for me, right, I combine the whole PDF into one long PDF. And so, mm. you know, I'm always scrolling up, scrolling down, scrolling up, scrolling down. And I make bookmarks based on topics. Yeah. Uh, so not not based on years. So there there isn't really a, a year whereby I can recall that that really stand out to me. But um for new investors thinking about uh, you know how we should approach a company's marketing span, you know, or like mm. what you mentioned about operating leverage or even the nuances of accounting or competitive advantages, then Warren Buffett letters is definitely something you have to check out. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, like, I like his sarcasm. Actually, the letters I really enjoy is his sarcasm. It's like, uh, there was one time about growth and uh, value and then it says it's uh, something along the lines of cross-dressing or something. I can't remember the, ex- <laughs> the exact yeah. words, right? Because that one, it's like, it sticks to you. It's like, it's like yeah. a slap in your face. Right. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's uh that's yeah. And I I guess like for you personally, right? Do you have a, a standout lesson from Buffett? Because there's so many, right? But yeah. is there one? I, I think um one of it it definitely has to be the point on um C's candy. Um so he, uh. he actually talks about um the difference between an asset light company and an asset heavy company right so i mean when you look at c's candy the the beauty of it is that it's able to grow without requiring a lot of capital so i think the return on invested capital is like 20 25 to 35 percent so when he do out the math like that um, it really just made a lot of sense for us to invest in you know companies that have pricing power and another one I, I frequently cite, right, is his comment on, um, this might be have been his AGM because I, I watch all his AGM as well. But when asked about inflation, right, the truth is not all companies are going to be affected the same. If mm. we were to think about, um, let's say um, today you are a very famous doctor. You know, if today the dollars goes to waste, 
um, and people have to pay you in terms of seashells, you are still going to be able to collect that payment in whatever currency um, is required. It could be Bitcoin, it could be this, it could be that. But it is always back to which company has the strongest pricing power. And, you know, they are able to pass on, it could be inflation, it could be, you know, the dollar falling down. You know, people are going to pay them for their product somehow mm. or another. So which is why when people ask me, are you concerned about, you know, crypto coming up? Are you concerned about inflation? I will, I will usually give them this example um, whereby, you know, if the company has pricing power, you know, and consumers really want their product, they're going to charge, they're going to be able to charge in whatever currency or they are going to be able to pass on inflation to consumers, you know, and they're going to be fine. That's a good point, yeah. actually. Yeah, I forget that that was one of his, his points about currencies as well. That's a, that's a good point. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. Actually, just to add what, what he just said, because I, I have the tweet here. It says, during inflation, goodwill is the gift that gi- keeps giving. <laughs> it's like, it, yeah, I guess it's like there is there's no change to the, the value of the service or the product that is being consumed. And I, I love the way that Ed Thomas actually put the analogy, regardless of what currency, whether it's rubles, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's what, yeah. as long as that the demand of that product uh, is being consumed and, and uh, the goodwill has been built over the years, it's just continuously going to yeah, compound. Yeah, man. That's a yeah. Yeah, good, good reminder as to the situation that we are in right now. So yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and picking investments. Um, you know, you've been on Twitter for for quite a while now, right? And obviously, you, you've come across many opinions. Maybe you've abandoned some of what some of the beliefs you've held. You've added to it, subtracted, what whatnot. But I'm going to put you on the spot. And I'm going to ask you: What do you think is the most controversial opinion that you think you hold about money in general? It doesn't have to be investing, but it can include investing. But about yes. money, yeah. What What's the most controversial opinion I hold? About- that you'll be quite afraid to put it on Twitter right now. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think. Or maybe if you put it on Twitter, who knows? And then you got you got a lot of brick bats for it. You know? <laughs> I'm I'm trying to think of and okay. Um I don't think I really have a controversial opinion, but I think one thing that makes most people surprised is when they ask me how much um emergency cash I have, I usually tell them two years and they'll be shocked. Like, why why do you keep two years? I thought the rule of thumb is six to twelve months. But, you know, I, I see value in that, in a sense, uh, you always have to find that number that is suitable for you um, in terms of, you know, like throughout crises, you're able to hold through, you have that holding power because in order to finish, we must first uh, be able to finish the race, right? And then same thing with compounding and growing uh, your wealth. I don't want to be in a situation whereby, you know, uh, maybe some of my family members, uh, you know, get into medical emergency, need cash or something. And then the market is doing very badly at the same time. I don't want to be put in a position whereby I liquidate at rock bottom prices, which is why mm-hmm. I, I, I hold quite a lot of uh, emergency fund. Um, in terms of investable cash, I'm usually fully invested, but the two years is strictly, no matter how bad the market fall, yeah. I, will, I will never invest that amount of money. And I will always make sure that my insurance, so on and so forth, is taken care of. It, it, it is always from um, protecting the downside point of view. You know, I, I really don't want to be put in a position whereby one day I need to touch my investment just because, you know, I never handle my personal finances correctly. So, I mean, there's a lot of investors who tell me like, why why you keep so much cash? Um, but, but it is really from an anti-fragility point of view, right? Um, and from COVID, we can tell like, you know, a lot of companies that are previously, they were leveraged up to the neck, not because they got bad business model, but, you know, they were they were trying to buy back shares, so on and so forth. They, they really leveraged maybe 
three times um, book value or something. And, and you really start to see that fragility comes in and they will have to be at the mercy of the capital markets. Same thing in 2008. So, I mean, I, I try to, when I look for a company, I look for anti-fragility. So when I conduct my own affairs as well, I try to be as anti-fragile as I can. Yeah, oh, yeah that, that, is, that is something that is uh, that will be deemed uh, as extreme, I think. Uh, yeah. I can agree to that. But, you know, I mean, in the same vein, right? Have you seen like an opinion, a thread, whatever, or an account on Twitter where you looked at that and then you think, well, you know, some of what they're saying is kind of either challenging my beliefs or at least um, causing me to, I think the phrase is to, you know, put a stone in my shoe, right? It's like to, to annoy you a little bit and say, that's not really what I believe, but, you know, uh, I, I, you know I'm starting to see some value there. Is there, is there any such tweet or threats? Do you remember? So maybe um, one example whereby I, I had to unlearn and relearn is mm. options. Um, mm. I, I think it happened last year because I mean, I, I always thought options, you know, is speculative instrument, so on and so forth. Because, you know, Warren Buffett is always saying derivative, uh, you know, it's a what, what weapons of mass destruction. Right? Uh, yes, yeah. mass destruction, right? Weapons of mass destruction. So I never gave it a thought um, until, uh, you know, I, I saw some other folks, you know, publish content out there on how we could actually, you know, make use of volatility by, you know, trading options. Um, so the way the way I use options now is very closely tied to how I invest because the way options is priced, right, it's going to be based on a few things. The interest rate um, is going to be based on whether the company issue dividends. And, you know, um, most importantly, bulk of the pricing of the options is actually driven by volatility. Mm, so okay. when, when the market is extremely volatile, like in 2020, in March of 2020, right, you are actually able to sell um, puts on companies you want to buy. So rather than buying the company outright, so for example, I, I was buying Berkshire or even Facebook, uh, Google, Amazon, so on and so forth um, during the, the pullback, you know, rather than buying the company outright, I can actually sell puts on this company. And, you know, when I sell puts, I get a premium upfront, which I yeah. can immediately invest into the market. So this is like float, right? Like what Warren yeah. Buffett always talk about, that there's float generated. And when it hits my exercise price, the premium sort of, you know, sort of act as a, like a discount coupon, you know, like mm. rather than paying maybe 200 for Facebook, you know, when I sell a put option, I get $10 in premium. Then in the end, I'm only paying $190. So that, that was quite a big aha moment for me because previously, whenever people talk to me about options, I'm like, oh, I don't gamble, you know, I, I just dismiss them. But when I saw um, some folks write about how they do it step-by-step, step, and, and, and then that was just mind-blowing, right? Because... It is actually, you're just doing it on companies that you have done your fundamental analysis on. You have conviction, you want to own them. Um, and, you know, and through options, you are able to get uh, the float that come in. Uh, and you are also able to, you know, reduce your buying price. Yeah. Also, there's actually very, very intelligent and smart way to actually do options, which is actually not speculative at all. So that was the biggest um, aha moment for me last year. It's like a magnifier like that, right? Of what, of your hard work, essentially. It's just adding that additional returns. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, now uh, I think one last question on investing and after I'll talk a little bit about personal finance. Um, you know, you one of the things that is great about Twitter is that you meet all sorts of people, right? So is there anyone on Twitter today that you really look up to you've mentioned like some of the mentors or or, or whatnot online uh sorry or 
good books and you know whether it's your Howard Marks or Nick Sleeps or all that. But I want to know is there anyone on on Twitter? You know maybe they have not read a book, uh, written a book, but you know they they write really good threads about investing. Um, I think Honam is one of them. Um, from mm. Alto Ventures, I think Honam is one of the very high quality follows. Uh, then I think if you're interested in uh, the Chinese market, Reima is one one of them also. It's Rayma a lady, tweets. right? Yeah, from Tech Bus China, she read tweet really good insights um, into investing in China. Then, um, I mean, when we look at the Singapore base, right, uh, I'm actually very grateful for Eugene because he was actually the one who asked me to go on Twitter. Well, Eugene is quite, I think he he comes onto your podcast yes. quite often. Yes, Vision yes. Capital, right? Yes, he's a, he's, a, he's a great guy, right? Super growth oriented, you know, and he really looks out for, for other people. So I'm, I'm actually really, really grateful for, for you. Actually, he's the one who recommended me to you guys, I think. Oh, really? Uh, wow. Yeah, so he, he said like, viral, you must go there and do the interview because he says like, uh, I, this is his word. He said that you guys are the best interviewers. So, oh yeah. So, Very kind of him. Uh. <laughs> so he, wow. really, he really has uh, think quite highly of, of you guys. Uh, and, and so like, um, Eugene is also a great follow on Twitter. He, he really shares a lot of the, um, the earnings breakdown so on and so forth. Yeah, and, and the only reason I was on Twitter is because last year, I think I met him in September 2020, I remember. Mm. Yeah, so that, that was when I started becoming active on Twitter, you know, and, and that, that is really when uh, a lot of the idea flow actually comes in, comes from. So, yeah, so a big shout out to Eugene. Then I think another guy, uh, I think two two other guys, um, Calvin Sito and also yeah. Max Max Cole. Okay, I was wondering when is he coming out? Uh, which, yeah. which is also both on your podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah. But definitely those those are very very good uh good followers as well. You know, always creating a lot of value for for the community. Yeah, yeah, I was wondering if you didn't say Max, I'll, uh, I'll, I think he, uh, he will come and probably strangle yeah, him. I will, will, will timestamp. I think right after this, I'll receive phone call. Yeah, 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 I will timestamp this particular moment and let Max know that you didn't mention him. Yeah, uh, yeah, th- thanks for sharing that. I know Rima and, and I, I do follow Honam, so I think it's... Uh, yeah, Honam is good. Huh? Yeah, I mean, and, and the thing is, you know, the thing about Twitter, I realized so is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of garbage out there. Like, it's so much just hype and speculation. So, you know, when you got guys like that available, such as yourself and the people you mentioned, I think it, it, it really helps uh, with at least the mental side of things, definitely. So, um, actually, this is the last question about uh, investing, my apologies, right? And that is, people like starting out, right? Uh, and I know you wrote a lot of articles about what you would tell your 20-year-old selves and things like that. So maybe for someone starting out today, right? What are like the things you would definitely do to um, tell them to, you know, prepare themselves for this very scary world called investing? And maybe as a supplementary question or so, if someone wants to be a content creator like yourself, mm. specifically on Twitter, what are the tips and tricks? Um, okay, so I mean, for the investing question, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think most should, action because I mean the, the best time to invest was is always 10 years ago right the next best yeah. time is now I, I think you can start with indexing um, while learning at the same time because I, I think for most folks right the friction is is quite big um, unless you are quite a fanatic like you know like yourself or, or my or me right 
whereby you really take action to really read a lot of stuff. But I think most people, um, you know, the highest ROI would just comes from, you know, starting to index, you know, get it going, get it momentum going. And then if you are interested in investing in the stock market, um, I usually recommend Peter Lynch book uh, for beginners because, you know, he writes in a very entertaining way. Definitely not um, the Ben Graham book, right? Because um, I, I think that would make most people quit investing if that is the yeah. first book. Oh, that yeah, is the exactly. first book oh yes, <laughs> yes. This is one of the tweets where I get a lot of shit from Twitter. When I, when I say like, um, you know, nobody should introduce uh, to a beginner Benjamin Graham book because nobody, nobody will complete that book. It is so technical and um, it is not for this era. Yeah. So, I mean, once, once you get the momentum going, then I, I think it's better to read um, uh, other books. But I, I think Peter Lynch writings is a good place to start. Warren Buffett, yeah. a good place to start. Um, then maybe um, Gotham Bit, The Joys of Compounding is also mm. a, a good place to start. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess the, the right place to start is really um, through reading. And then, you know, do your analysis, write down your thoughts. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is definitely, you're definitely going to feel insecure about, you know, investing at first. But I think it is always good to dip your toes, um, start small, then slowly trunch in, build up your confidence, um, because there are certain things that cannot be taught, right? I mean, one is your experience and two is you, you cannot teach volatility, right? Sitting through volatility and you really have to experience it in order to, you know, feel how it is like when you see your portfolio string by 50% and mm. then, you know, go back up maybe one, 200%, you know, you have to experience that emotional cycle. Yeah. So, so just, just start as soon as possible. Then on the content creation question, I think is, um, you have to publish regularly because I, I think for mm. most people, you need that feedback loop. Yes. Content creation is all about feedback loop. You have to try, everybody will have different writing style. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so, some content creators I see when they try and adopt my writing style, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really fly well for them because I, I think it, you have to build up that uh, so-called branding with your audience as well. So it is about, I think, publishing consistently. I mean, if it's going to be Twitter specific, I think if you have smaller than 5K followers, at the start, you probably want to spend like 70% of your time engaging big accounts, 30% of the time is writing your tweets. And then once you cross that threshold of 5,000 followers, right? I think that's where you can really put 80-90% of your time writing your own content because um, by then you have your own following already. Otherwise, otherwise um, at the start, you're just tweeting into the air. Like no, nobody will read your stuff. Yeah. Then after that is don't be too harsh on yourself. I guess the imposter syndrome is uh, mm. very real for most, which is why a lot don't publish regularly. Um, just go ahead and publish regularly. Yeah. And, and you know, once you get a feedback loop in, you have to get a feel for how the algo is like, what the audience mm -hmm. likes. Uh, and then, you know, then, then I guess usually with consistent effort, your follower count will just build up. Mm. I think that's very simple, but quite executable advice. Right, John? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at the amount of tweets, right? He has 5,526 tweets. Uh. So uh, if you want to talk about discipline and consistency, this is, yeah. this is where you look at, man. Join October 2020, 29,000 followers. Hats off. Uh, yeah. Yeah, hats off, you know. <laughs> yeah, man. Okay, now this is the last bit that I really want to learn about yourself. And that has to do with um, a bit more personal finance, right? So I think there are, on my side, three questions. I'll just ask the first. Um, I think slightly less so in Malaysia, uh, but still very relevant. Uh, alongside Singapore as well, definitely very relevant in Singapore. Is are you quitting your nine to five? 
Mm. Um, and I know it's something that uh, you, you've written articles about as well, about the fears and like, how do you prepare yourself? I think you did talk a little bit about how you have two years of, of, of emergency funds. So I'm sure it's tied into this question. And that is, um, what, what do you think are the conditions or the conditions for you? Or maybe share your story on quitting nine to five. And what would you say are the right conditions for someone to quit? And how do, how do they manage the world of a no nine to five? I, I think uh, first is the idea of quitting nine to five, right? Is not to chill at home and do nothing. So, I mean, creating content is like a full-time job, you know, like like you guys like that. You know, I, and I take it very, very seriously. Um, but the idea here is that, you know, um, there's always the phase in life whereby you are exchanging time for money, right? Maybe you are doing work that you don't really enjoy. You know, you are trying to build your capital. But I, I guess for most people um, or a few of my friends, they don't really know when to, you know, do that pivot from that accumulation phase and doing work that they hate to the phase whereby, you know, they're doing work that they like on a more sustainable basis, which is why you see a lot of people looking forward to traveling holidays or, you know, they're they are chasing after fire, right? The financial independence retire early. Yeah. When, when I hear people chasing after fire, uh, it's just a very strong indication that they're doing something they hate. Yeah. Or, you know, people looking towards, towards the next holiday every single time. I mean, granted that, you know, uh, you get to go on an adventure, you get to experience other things, but it is usually because you hate your life here. And, and so for myself, um, I was actually lucky enough to write the COVID V-shaped recovery up. Um, mm. And back then, I... Okay, so when I was employed, my emergency fund is around six months. It is not as aggressive as now. I mean, now it's because, you know, like you said, I quit my nine to five. I, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I like, which is investing full time, you know, and writing about my thoughts uh, online. Yeah, so which is why my emergency fund becomes way more aggressive. But um, I, I think for everyone out there who's thinking of maybe pivoting, maybe it's the right time for you to pivot already. Yeah. You always want to make sure that your downside is taken care of first. Um, because I, I think it is very difficult to start a business and do it well if you always have your back against the wall. Like, you mm. know, your bills, all this must be paid, so on and so forth. It's going to make you uh, make decisions that are not the most ideal. And, and so I, I like to make sure that, you know, if today I don't work, you know, the next few years, I'm actually covered. So like if I were to liquidate my portfolio, like I can survive for many, many, many years without worrying. Um, that might be a, a bit aggressive for some, but I, I think uh, most people don't have to be as conservative as me. But what is more important is while you're still employed, while you're still having a paycheck, it's important to test out your idea first. Um, like, so for myself, I started writing um, one year before I quit my job. Because uh, when I take the scholarship, you know, I, it actually came with a four years bond with the Singapore government. So, you know, at the three-year mark, I was very sure that, you know, I was going to quit, which is why I started uh, meeting a lot of people, trying out different, different things at the site, you know, and eventually I found writing to be the one for me. And, you know, it is really when, you know, the financial aspect is taken care of and two, there's a, there's a demand for my writing then that's where it's a good time to be. But because ultimately for most people, I think the, the bill, you know, the family, the dependence is very real. Just like, you know, I, I still need to make sure my parents are taken care of so on and so forth. Mm. So um, always make sure that these um, basic needs, these core needs are taken care of first. Once it is settled, then I think it is a good time to start uh, Make, making a pivot. And the example I'd like to give here is, you know, the Jeff Bezos regret minimization framework. 
And I actually send this um, to all my colleagues on the last day of my employment, um, which is basically like when you, every one of us, I believe, have something we really want to do. But, you know, because we Asians usually delay gratification, right? We, we put yeah. off a site and then we try and build, we try and save, so on and so forth. So for Jeff Bezos back then, you know, he was making, I think, in excess of $100,000 back in 1990, so which is a lot of money, right? And when he wanted to start the online bookstore, his boss actually tell him it's ridiculous. Like, yeah, it is a good idea for someone else, but for you, you know, you have a bright future. Why do you want to do it? So he, he always try and imagine himself at 85 years old. Would he regret not doing this or not? And if the answer is yes, um, he probably would make the move. And I, and I find this to be a very good um, framework when it comes to approaching dif difficult decisions in life. So, I mean, for myself, um, if one day I regret what I've done, you know, I can always go back to the workforce again. But I think for a lot of people, um, they think that the risk is very high. It will be, you know, it is a non-reversible decision. But most of the case, it, it is going to be a reversible decision when it comes to pivoting to, you know, something, doing something you truly love. And for me, that's just investing and writing. And I, I think the bigger risk here is, you know, at the end of the day, we wake up 50, 60 years old, you know, and we live our life, uh, you know, just being afraid. And then we never, we never get to do certain things, you know, and, you know, our youth, our time is over just like that, you know, and we, we just keep doing the job we hate, so on and so forth. Yeah, but granted, there are, there are going to be people, people who love their job, like Max, right? Max, he, he loves public speaking, so on and so forth. So he, he yeah. really likes what he do. Um, but for me, I was um, growing up, I was, I, you know, I had a more defensive stance because of my family's money situation. So I, I didn't get to have the opportunity to really venture into doing things. I like everything was making sure the bills are paid. And you know, do a basic capital first. Um, and, and it's really trying to get that privilege to do what I love going in the future. Yeah, so once I, I built up that basic foundation, you know, then very quickly, I, I started to want to, you know, really test out whether there's demand. And if there's demand, you know, my finances are secure, uh, financially secure, then I, I just went for the pivot out of uh, my very, very stable uh, government job. Actually, right. I, I, I love what you just said about the reversible or the pivot because like what you said, a lot of people think in linear terms and you go in this direction, you can't turn, right? What do you think stops people from doing that? What, 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 is it a mental barrier? Is it uh, influences of opinions of people around them? What do you think is the strongest factor pulling them out? Because what you went through was exactly what I went through, to, to be right. honest. So, yeah. So, the, the biggest reason, when, whenever I do this, and you know, ever since I did that, I wrote that article, uh, it was viewed by many people, and many people approached me uh, regarding this. And the biggest number one reason I always hear, right, is that um, finances, you know, they're worried mm. about finances. But um, if we were to go five level deep, right, of why um, it's usually they're afraid of failing, you know, um, mm. it, it is not because of money. To be honest, I, I think most people are quite financially secure. You know, they are at, they are in their 30s or even, you know, maybe early 40s. A lot of them I know have a very sizable bank account already, um, mm. but they, they don't dare to do the pivot. And they say it's always like, oh, I, I need to give up my salary, so on and so forth. Um, but I mean, maybe for context, some of them have more than a million dollars already, but they are still, <laughs> they are, they are still permanently yeah. working. And, yeah. and I really think like it, it is, you, you are not worried about money. You are worried that you will be seen as a failure when you try and you fail. That's a but great I mean, point. I mean, to me, right, if, if I don't try, I don't fail, I will never find out. And that would be a much bigger regret. 
Um, and I think in life, if we always think about what other people would think of us, but the truth is most people don't spend their day like, hey, what is Thomas doing? You know, is he failing? Is he succeeding? No, nobody give a shit. Yeah. Uh, most, most people are busy thinking about themselves. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I really think that's the biggest holdback for most people. And, and it is such a waste of human potential, right? Um, because a lot of people I speak to or I see a lot of potential, but you know, because they are unable to disrupt themselves, you know, just like Kodak cannot disrupt or Nokia, you know, cannot make the pivot from buttons mm. to touchscreen. Um, mm. And, you know, they just live their life uh, all the way until they're old. And, you know, then they will tell me, I mean, I speak to a few folks who are above 50 or 60 in my company the previous time. They always tell me if I could reverse time, I would definitely take the pivot, you know, and, and you hear that very often. But when you speak to the 30, 40s, they will say like, oh, cannot money, yeah, this, uh, that. But I mean, the, the truth is it, is, it is just a lot of fear of failing, fear of disappointing other people, fear of what other people think of you. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I, I think fear of expectations is really the biggest culprit here. I, I, I love that you say that because uh, people actually call me up after I left my previous company. John, how do you get the courage to do it? I don't know. I just tried. <laughs> I don't know whether I'll see it. I'll just try, you know. And it's, it's so good that, uh, uh, that you brought it up because a lot of times people mask their fear yeah. in thinking that they are actually financially not well off. But at the same time, I think the reason why they have that fear as well, Thomas, is that they haven't sat down and really think hard about it or really put it down on paper, make it clarity. Like that, that's my two cents, uh, to be honest. Because how much, actually, if you ask a lot of people, I, I don't know whether your sampling is the same as mine, but if I ask a lot of people, how much do you actually need to survive? Uh, it actually stumps them. You know? yeah. I don't know about you. It actually stumps them because they I say, huh, you've never thought about how much you need? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's a very good exercise by Tim Ferriss, right? Which I actually did uh, when I thought of leaving my job, which is called the fear setting uh, exercise. Mainly you, you write down a list of your fears and then you write down what are the possible solutions you could do to mitigate all these concerns. And usually um, it all boils down to just your fear of failure. Um, all the money, all the everything could be fixed. It can be fixed one. Yeah. Mm. It is really just ourselves that, you know, that that's holding us back. Great. That's, uh, Great. that's, that's fantastic. I mean, for context, right? What, what a government job were you doing? Yeah. So back then I was in IRAS, uh, basically the Inland Revenue Authority of Singapore. And I, was, I was dealing with taxes. La. Yeah. Because <laughs> right. I, I signed their scholarship. So, you know, when they sponsor for the university and the overseas education, which I'm extremely grateful for, because uh, I, I think that was the, one point in my life whereby I, I didn't have to worry about money because there, mm. there is money coming in. I, I didn't have to worry about bills. They pay for hostel. They pay for my laptop. They, they really pay for everything. So very grateful um, to have that, uh, that scholarship pay for everything. Um, but at the same time, if I'm being honest, right, uh, when I signed that contract, I already knew like that, that job wasn't for me. It, it is solely mm. for that security. Uh, and, and so um, very grateful that it helped me build up the foundation um, to really get the privilege to where I am today. Yeah, but yeah, but basically that's about it. And th that is also where I learned from a lot of my colleagues, um, especially the older ones, like what their regrets are. And then, you know, that, that gave me um, the courage or it helps me with my decision making as to, you know, what I should be doing because, uh, you know, there's a very clear example out there. And if I will reverse that to where I am today, you know, the, the decision-making becomes quite obvious. Oh, so we should talk to 
old people more. That is my conclusion. <laughs> always go, always go. Always go, always go. go. Uh, go. <laughs> now, I, I, I'll move on to the next question that I have, which is uh, another one of your articles, which is not something, you know, people talk a lot about. And that is, you know, the amount of money you should be giving your parents. Right. <laughs> right. And this is really maybe for, you know, Asian people only. So any of you all non-Asians, uh, it doesn't mean that you don't give money to your parents, but uh, I guess the pressure is not as big, right? So um, there, are, there are many ways, right? Like some, some uh, you know, there's this Singaporean podcast, I think it's called uh, The Daily Catch-Up. And they also had one whole uh, podcast about how the how much they should be giving their parents right and so this in in one of the cases uh, the mother was this aggressive person where this is basically they need to see how much you're earning and then they'll essentially tax essentially it's your former job right it's taxation essentially um so that's like one method and then you know there are other parents who are like you know what just give me whatever things like that and then you've got parents who are you know who really need the money from the children so what would you say is your method of determining in your case? And do you have advice to give other people? Yeah, so that, that is, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote about that because, uh, and, and that became the most viral article on Sydney. I, I mean, I first published that really? on Sydney. Yeah, okay. so that one brought in, I think, maybe 35 to, I think 35,000 views. Um, and just for context, right? The, the second most viewed article is I think about 5,000 views. So, wow, so seven that, times. <laughs> uh, so that laps, like I think the next 10 articles weren't as viral as, as that article um, for opinion writers. Yeah, so um, I, I guess it became viral because a lot of people found it super relatable, right? Um, especially in the Asian context. Uh, I, I wrote that because I had a lot of friends um, who were living quite difficult life because their parents keep comparing within amongst each other, like how much is your kid giving? Wow. And, you know, they wear it like a badge of honor. Like if your kid is giving me 2K, you know, or, you know, so on and so forth. They, they just like to compare. And when I see it, right, it, usually when the parents is taking a large amount of money, it is not because the parents need that money. It is really from an ego standpoint from wow. Very with other parents. Wow, bragging rights, uh, in a way. Yeah, bragging, bragging rights. rights. They're just trying to say, well, my son is, you know, giving me this amount, you know, like, uh, and, and, you know, they, they infer to the amount given as how much the son loves them, oh. um, which is really toxic, <laughs> right? Which is really toxic. Um, and, and the truth is, most of my friends, when they first come out to work, maybe they make like four or $5,000 a month and they need to give like two, 3000 to their parents. Uh, oh it, gosh. It, it is not sustainable. I mean, and you're talking about the time whereby you're trying to build your home, start a family, so on and so forth. It is it is incredibly draining to do so. I mean, of course, on the other on the other aspect, right? There are kids who don't give their parents anything, um, and and you know, and I I think the point here really is you have to talk about it with your parents, and as parents, you need to be honest. Um, with yourself as to, you know, do you really need this amount or are you just trying to win the, um, you know, compare with the Jonas's? And, and if you are doing that, I think at the end of the day, we must always go back to understand what we are trying to go after, right? And, and it is really family harmony because, um, you know, when your family is harmonious, it is really, really priceless. But when we like things like this get in the way, um, when it comes to comparing with the Jonas's, then I think you're just bringing unrequired uh, stress into the family. And at the, at, at the end of the day, you realize that, you know, when your kid or your parent, you know, they're healthy, uh, you know, they, they you have good relationship, that, that's really all you need. Um, 
I think for the parents allowance part, it is going to be very, um, very, very specific to each family, depending on how much nest egg uh, the family have, right? So for example, both my parents have no savings, zero. Um, and, and so like the way I approach this is going to be very different from how my friends yeah. approach it because I, I, I mean, me and my sister, we have to be the one to pay the bills and, and everything. Yeah, so um, for most people, I think just, just directly have a very, very clean, uh, clear conversation with your parents. Um, and then you have to lay out like, you know, what are you, uh, what, what are you hoping to achieve in the future? Like you have to, you have to lay it out to them and let them know, un understand that you're trying to save for your own retirement. And at the same time, you're going to start a family. And it is definitely not easy being in the uh, sandwich generation, right? I yeah. mean, when we look at our parents, the reason why they have their mindset is because, um, you know, the family nucleus is big. Like when I look at my mom, she's one out of 10. You know, mm. 10 people support two parents is definitely different from two people support two parents. 100%. I mean, and last time things are not that expensive. I mean, when we look at Singapore uh, housing prices during my parents' generation, they bought a house for like $25,000. When I look at the housing prices today, it's three, dollars $400,000. It is a very, very different landscape. And so you need to help your parents uh, understand that and, you know, work out a, a figure that's enough for them to live respectively, so on and so forth. But yeah, but when it comes to this, um, I think comparison or rather envy is going is the mm. biggest evil of all. That's a, that, that, that is actually a very interesting insight. I didn't, I didn't know like it was such a com competition. Um, but I mean, without sounding too stereotypical, that is Singapore for you, right? So, <laughs> Everything must compete. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, a follow-up to that would be, I think something maybe more on the touchy-feely side. And, you know, feel free to not share if, if you feel that uh, it, uh, you, you, you don't want to answer the question. But how, I guess people want to know, like, how do you prepare yourself for that conversation, I guess, with your, with, with, with your parents, right? And then in your case, especially, right? Because... You know they have no savings, yeah. right? Um, it's very different for someone who perhaps parents are pretty decently well off, and you know it's about it's more about giving back as a token sum rather. Uh, like yeah, but in your case, it's a it's a matter of necessity. So how 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 did the conversation uh went actually? So I mean um if I'm being very honest here, right? I I don't have a very uh very, very smooth answer to this because for my family, our communication style is we fight. <laughs> you will fight because I, I mean, I will disagree with how he manages money. My father manages money. He's going to disagree with how I manage my money. Uh, I mean, I strongly believe I'm right. He will strongly believe he's right. Yeah, And, and so uh, we, we will fight. But I, I mean, I would say that uh, this is, I, I wouldn't say it's unique to my family, but I, I mean, I, I guess, uh, you know, in life, we have to play our cards, whatever cards we are dealt yeah, with. Right? That's right. And so for me, um, there it, it, it is difficult for me to, you know, take the spreadsheet out and then explain to him, <laughs> you know, these are the cards. <laughs> he's, he's not going to listen, you know, he's not going to listen. You have to speak in that language. Uh, and I'll speak in Hokkien when I'm communicating, uh, right? Yeah, so so it, 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 it may not be what uh, a lot of people, uh, what, what is applicable to most family out there. Yeah, but but for me, um, our our communication language is Hokkien, and then it's going to be quite argumentative, uh, you know. Um, but I I would say for most of my friends out there, uh, I I would just tell them, you know, just explain to your family nicely because most of them their their parents are working adults, hmm. and so when when you work when you have parents who are working adults, they generally are able to understand these concepts a bit better because yeah. you know, 
yeah whereas for my family um not not much working uh, experience mainly uh yeah main, mainly just that I, I think it's quite different from what other families i i think for most parents you are able to talk some sense okay maybe that's the wrong word to use you're able to reason with them yeah. like you know show them like expenses and this and that talk to them about investing they will understand yeah, yeah. but for mine I, I think it's a bit a bit unique in that sense yeah thanks for sharing man being transparent about it thanks yeah, yeah, yeah. i think i think these are some of the more hidden i think like personal finance is when i read blogs it's so so much of it is about the math right but basic things like how do you even start the conversation is uh, not really uh, in the conversation online at least to me lah. okay uh john any more questions about personal finance and all that no uh, i think i think uh you know i i'm very heartened that uh, yeah, yeah. thomas brings a very uh, unique and personal uh perspective because you know uh, a lot of people think that investing is only for no, not think like I think it's it's quite sad that investing usually is for a little people who are a little bit more well to do because they've already gotten their their basics uh, settled. Yeah. And I think this uh, for me, uh, if I were to uh, allow to express myself, is that he brings a perspective where now because I have managed to settle myself, then you can actually help out with the parents, even though it may be confront a little bit more confrontational and all that. And hopefully, this gives hope to those who are in similar situations that, that they, yeah. they, they may be able to, you know, do the same. Uh, actually, to your point, John, uh, maybe I'll ask Thomas as well. What, what about the reverse, right? Let's say um, you get someone who doesn't want to give a single cent. Will you, will you start speaking Hokkien to him? I mean, if I will look at, I mean, I definitely have friends who don't give a single cent. Um, I, I think we always have to look at context, right? In America, that might be normal, but in Singapore or rather Asia, right? Asia in general, um, I think when we talk about context, I think children still have to give parents a bit. I mean, unless mm-hmm. the parents just outrightly say, you know, I don't need anything, just save it for us. I mean, I, I do see yeah. a few family like this. But I, I think it is still important in our context for um, for children to actually give uh, parents, you know, at least a token sum, or, you know, or at least help them defray some expenses. Um, just because, uh, you know, it, it, we always must put everything in context, right? And growing up in this region, uh, you are going to tear your parents apart, you know, if they have the expectations that they will get something. But yeah. in the end, you know, they are just going to infer as you don't love me. You know, I, I you know, I have an unfilial kid, so on and so mm. forth. Mm. Yeah. So in that context, I, I think have to give something and the the amount to give should always be communicated directly with uh, your, your parents and, you know, try and try and get uh, understanding from both sides and work out a, a figure that's able to keep the uh, family relationship intact. Yeah. Great. Great right, right, right. Yeah. Actually, that's that's probably maybe another article for you, right? Uh, what if you don't want to give your parents any money? Yeah. They just, just film a video of you like slapping a door, maybe. Uh, uh, yeah. So this last bit really has to do with, you know, outside of investing, right? Because, uh, you know, we, we've got uh, like Eugene on and I know Eugene is someone who has like a very active life. If you follow him on Instagram, you know, uh, the, only, the only reason why I don't call him Buddha is because he hasn't shaved his head yet you know <laughs> uh, but you know what do you actually do I guess for fun because uh, you know we always want to know understand a lot of our guests like beyond just what they do in their profession do you do something for fun or, or like investing is the only thing you do 
Yeah, so um, maybe I start with what I what I don't do. I I don't okay. drink alcohol. I I don't nice. gamble. Um, yeah. So I mean, the the reason why I I don't I don't even gamble on Chinese New Year. I don't. I have no idea how to play all the poker cards, so and so okay. forth. Uh, okay. And like when I I mean I used to play basketball. So if you ask my teammates, whenever we go overseas, like to Macau, to Hong Kong, uh, Australia, uh, so on and so forth. It, it, they will always go drinking and I would be the only one not drinking. Um, Wait, I mean, drinking free throws, uh, last time drink. when I was younger, I say that I'm allergic to alcohol, but uh, right. now that I'm older and I, and you know, I'm, I'm not really sick. There's no more peer pressure. Um, the reason is because when I look at my, my, uh, my own family members, right. Hmm. Um, I try to be the opposite of what they are. So I, I try ah. to live a very disciplined lifestyle and I guess the, the best way to quit an addiction is not start one. So um, I, I don't have TikTok. I, I you know, I, yeah, so on and so forth. Yeah, any, anything that people say is addictive, I just don't, I just don't do it. I don't partake in it at all. Because do you I'm, still I'm play worried. sports? Uh, yeah, so I, I still play basketball from time to time. But nowadays, because of my knee operation, you know, less intense. But I go to the gym every day. I, you know, either I go to the gym every day or I'll go run every day. So, my routine is actually quite similar to Eugene. Uh, I also start my day around 5.30 in the morning. Not because I set my alarm or what. I, I think it's just because last time I had to work, study and CCA, you know, extracurricular activities to build up my resume. Um, so I always go to sleep at, you know, like 12, then wake up at 4.30 to do my work and then I'll go to gym. So, so that habit sort of um, trickled even until today. And, and so like my body clock is still that way. I'm trying to change it because I read a book by Matthew Walker. Why oh, we sleep, sleep. Right? Yeah. It's important for long-term health. So yeah. I, I've been trying to push back my sleeping time, but uh, not much success. I, I still cannot stay. I still can't stay asleep. I'm very awake at 5.30. Wow. Yeah. So my routine is right off uh, I'm when I'm awake, I will do all the heavy analysis work. I'll, the previous night, I'll prepare a list of things for me to read. Usually, I put the most difficult things uh, first off in the morning. Because right in the morning, right, our brain is primed for analytical work. So if there's a very difficult company to analyze or if there's um, certain white papers um, that's very difficult to understand, I'll put first, first two to three hours. Then after that, I'll proceed to writing. Um, then I will break up the tempo by going to the gym. Then the afternoon um, is where we are primed for creative work. So like if I need to redesign my blog, the UX, or, you know, I need to um, edit my words to make the, you know, Twitter content flow better. You know, that's where I do it. Um, and then the late afternoon, which is around this timing, is where I schedule, like if I have interviews, I'll schedule during this timing. Or mm -hmm. if I'm networking with other people, I try to put it at this timing also. Because I, I am not very productive in terms of um, doing analytical work uh, in the late afternoon, so on and so forth. Yeah. Right. Why do people need to go to NS when they can live a schedule like you? You know. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm yeah. just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, you, you say you play basketball, right? Are you following the NBA? Uh, last time I used to follow very closely. Uh, now less so. Less so. I mean, I I I used to play basketball every single day, right? For for my university, for wow. clubs, for this, for that. Um, like my schedule Monday to Sunday, it is uh, every day will have basketball training. Wow. I, I mean, if I if I was telling my other teammate, if I asked my younger self, do you know that one day you will not be playing basketball every single day? I'll be, I'll be quite shocked. I mean, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be my life. Yeah, but the fact is now I play about once a week or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, was that like do you like do you have a team that you support? Uh, 
I mean, no, not not really. I, I never really supported a specific team before. You know, I, I used to just watch and enjoy the game. You know, I, I don't have that uh that labeling of like which team I, I yeah. really love. And I, I think the same applies for investing. I try not to label myself too much because then you will become very defensive. Your mind will close off to other ideas. So I, I mean, I always try to prevent yeah. uh, putting on a label on myself. All right, all right. Any, any, any players that you... Players wise, you wish you you could become, you know, I guess when you are when you play. Oh, I mean, um, it, it is not possible to replicate him, but I, I would think I used to like Shaquille O'Neal a lot because oh. I play right? yeah. I mean, but he's, oh, wait, you're a center, so you play center as well. Yeah, right? I play center. Okay, so like you probably can't see, but I I am uh about two meter tall. Yeah. Oh, so, no wonder. So, I mean, in Asia, six, I will play six two lah. 6-2-6-3 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 6-4 